Welcome nerds, now bracing for an entertainment incursion. Rolling Rockabilly Track Gearing you up with the latest in horror, video games, movies, and TV. Now searching for the world between worlds. Nerds, this will be your finest hour. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, we're breaking down the latest episode of The Mandalorian, and we're also talking all the big news coming out of Star Wars Celebration. Plus, we got a new trailer for The Marvels, and we're talking AEW Dynamite. And if today's episode isn't enough for you, don't forget you can get even more Amazing Nerd Show content on Patreon by subscribing to our $5 tier. Doing so, you'll gain access to our Best and Worst of the Week show. Though if you'd like even more than that, additional bonus podcasts will be available for our $10 tier that includes all of the other tiers' benefits as well. Incoming giveaway alert. All right, before we move on, the good people over at Paramount has sent us five copies of the first season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds on Blu-ray to give away to our loyal listeners. All you have to do for a chance to win is either subscribe over on our Patreon at Patreon slash Amazing Nerd Show on any tier level that you'd like, or you could leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and DM us a screenshot when you're done. And then at the end of April, we'll randomly select five lucky winners. I mean, you can't really get better than that. I mean, not only do you get a chance to win the first season of an awesome new show, but you also get the satisfaction of helping support the podcast. Well, season one of Star Trek Strange New Worlds is now on Blu-ray, DVD, and limited edition Blu-ray Steelbook. Experience every episode like never before with over 100 minutes of special features, including exclusive cast and crew interviews, a gag reel, deleted scenes, and more. Own the Emmy-nominated first season of Star Trek Strange New Worlds from CBS and Paramount Home Entertainment today. Limited edition 4K Ultra HD Steelbook available for pre-order now. But all right, with that said, let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors in nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters, we're mere podcasters with opinions. Warning, potential spoilers for upcoming shows and movies ahead. Check timestamps to avoid spoilers. You have been warned. All right, Christian, so like we mentioned up front, this past weekend was Star Wars Celebration. Let's go ahead and start things off with what I think was the most exciting thing to come out of the big event, uh, which was an amazing Ahsoka trailer. It's been a while. Things have changed. I started hearing whispers about Thrawn's return. heir to the Empire. All right, Christian, so I don't know about you, but I thought this looked epic. I mean, it was a great way to wake up that morning seeing all this lightsaber action. I tell yes, you what. Yes. <laughs> so we start things off with Ahsoka, like, wandering the ruins of perhaps a Jedi temple of some sort. Um, you know, she does the Jedi trick of getting to the bottom of things where there's no stairs and, you know, cutting a hole in the ground uh-huh. and just dropping, <laughs> which is always badass. I don't care what anyone says. Um, but yeah, it, a lot of people are speculating that she could be searching for the world between worlds. Um, you know, it's like a force nexus that allows like one to move uh, between like time and space. It was featured in the Rebels series, mm. um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, you know, time travel. 
Um, yeah. Especially mixing with my Star Wars, but I'm willing to give it a, a chance if, you know, means that we get an Ahsoka series. So um, even the logo for the show features some kind of map that's connected to the world between worlds. And it looks like we see that in two separate ships in this trailer as well. Actually, I didn't catch that. Where, where, where's that at? Uh, there's a moment where we see Thrawn for the first time from the back, and he's got the map in front of him. And I'm not sure if it's the same ship or not, but there's also a couple like seconds later, we see a woman taking a few steps towards the map, too. Gotcha, gotcha. I think I was just so focused on Thrawn, I totally missed that. <laughs> Uh, and we know, like, later on, I guess, uh, over the weekend, they did, like, show a extended version of oh, okay. this trailer where you did get to see Thrawn's face for the first time. But they didn't release that version of the trailer to the public yet. So I'm assuming the reason why she's searching for the World Between Worlds is she sees it as, a, you know, perhaps a, a means to rescuing Ezra who at this point has gone missing, you know, after the events mm -hmm. of the finale of Rebels. By the way, back to the beginning of the trailer, um, you know, while we watch, you know, Ahsoka searching, we hear a voiceover of her saying, you know, something's coming, something dark. But after this, we get our first look at live action Sabine Wren uh, and her weird space cat. Uh, she's sitting in front of her Mandalorian helmet. We also see Hera for the first time, who's played by a Mary Elizabeth Weinstead. She's, of course, piloting a ship. We also hear a voiceover saying it's a new beginning. For some, it means war. For others, it means power. Um, this apparently is the voice of Ray Stevenson, who's playing a quote-unquote Dark Force user, Balin. We then get a quick cut to his apprentice, Shin Hati, who is storing the bridge of a ship. Um, and looking like a complete badass doing it. At first, I thought it was an Imperial ship just because all their outfits feel like very Imperial, but I guess the badges on that they're wearing, I forgot what those are called. Um, it's New Republic? Yeah, very New Republic, yeah. Gotcha, okay. Yeah, I, I, I thought it looked very similar to what we saw them wearing at the um, New Republic headquarters mm. uh, in The Mandalorian. So I didn't get a real like close look at him though. So we actually heard rumors that there could be some dark Jedi in this series. And it looks like that rumor was actually true. Um, both of them look just fantastic. I guess a lot of fans were bitching because their uh, lightsabers were orange. Um, I didn't even really catch that, uh, but I guess that was purposeful. Um, Filoni mentioned that, you know, when we meet up with them, we soon find out that they're not necessarily what they seem. So I don't know exactly what that means. But at the same time, he also did mention that it was kind of a stylistic choice. And it was meant almost as like an homage to the way Vader's lightsaber would look um, in the 80s with in some like, you know, oh, promotional okay. material and like crossover media stuff. So um, but yeah, there, there's actually a story reason behind the fact that you know the the sabers aren't actually like red um so I, I guess we'll find out why um i don't know if it's a case of them being you know jedi who you know turn to the dark side but aren't exactly sith um you know i don't truly understand like the logistics of you know what makes a sith and what doesn't make a sith anymore because i feel like it's ever changing uh, uh depending on who's writing the lore 
Uh, but yeah, so maybe they didn't properly bleed their you know kyber <laughs> crystals. I don't know. It's just like at that point, it's like where's where's the line where like you know oh a purple lightsaber user is someone that uses dark side and light side powers. So it's like okay, where are they? Where do they turn to, to orange? I, I, I'm not. I, I don't care at that point. But and here's the thing: we literally got to watch the moment that Lucas decided to let like Sam Jackson have yeah. a purple lightsaber, and it was all just because he requested it, <laughs> and you know thought it would look cool. So Lucas just wrote it in. Like, don't get me wrong, like, I love getting into, like, the minutia of, like, how all of this works. But at the same time, like, I'm not going to lose sleep over it either. Um, and the fact that Filoni has actually come out and said that there will be kind of a storyline reason behind it. Like, I'm good. That's all I need to know. Mm. But back to our Dark Force users. Um, I guess some people are pointing out that it looks like Shin. What's the actress's name who's playing Shin? Uh, Ivana Sakno, I believe. Okay. How you say that? I guess some people are saying that she has like a Padawan braid in her hair. Oh. So, you know, maybe, like I said, maybe they are like Jedi who somehow got corrupted by the dark side. If that's the case, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of like parallels made between them and Ahsoka, um, you know, and like the, the different paths that they chose to make because you know we've also seen ahsoka turn her back on the jedi order um but because of the nature of her character she's been able to resist you know having you know the dark side corrupt her um but moving on uh the next scene we see a reunion between sabine and ahsoka ahsoka simply says things have changed i'm not quite sure what that means but then we cut to a hologram of Ma Mothma and others who I'm just assuming are, you know, somehow like higher ups with the New Republic. I don't know if Ahsoka is perhaps, you know, working with them uh, to like hunt down Thrawn. If maybe they now realize that Thrawn is a threat and he's out there pulling strings. I mean, this past week's episode of Mandalorian definitely implies that being the case. Um... So I'm curious to see, like, you know, what's Ahsoka's affiliation with the New Republic? Or if she's just working completely, like, solo on her own right now, and she's just trying to, like, put the band back together. Either way, I got a feel for Mon Mothma, who's, like, you know, been through so much to try and help build this rebellion and all her sacrifices, and it's... It's, it's probably not going her way yeah. <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's about to crumble really fast. Uh -huh. <laughs> but next we get the shot of Thrawn that we were talking about with a voiceover from Ahsoka saying that she started to hear whispers of the return of Thrawn, you know, as the heir of the Empire. So it looks like Thrawn is definitely in line to, you know, inherit the Emperor's role. Um, as leader of the Empire. Also, the line about being the heir to the Empire is like an homage to the 90s novels, uh, you know, that focused on Thrawn. I mean, at this point, they're considered legends and, you know, not part of canon, but we've mm -hmm. seen, you know, that plenty of creators, you know, working for Disney, but we've seen plenty of like, you know, creators working for Star Wars nowadays, you know, feeling free to cherry pick what they like and what they don't like, you know, from, you know, the, the legends material. Because Lord knows Palpatine would never 
ever assign anyone to be his heir. <laughs> no, and I'm sure I'm, I, I'm sure that's why he had all the cloning shit in place, right? Uh, he was going to live forever. <laughs> yes. Well, anyway, after this, we get a look at a new character named Morgan Elsbeth, who we don't really have any information on right now. No, yeah. Um, but anyway, we quickly then cut to Balin once again, and then a shot of uh Hera uh addressing I'm guessing like New Republic troops telling them that you know we have to prepare for the worst uh then we once again see Balin uh this time facing off against Ahsoka in a lightsaber duel um some people are speculating that they might actually be in the world between worlds here um I'm not quite sure well just um, because it's like so like map like and not necessarily the same as what we saw from uh, Rebels. I'm assuming maybe she's trying to like do some like cartography or some shit, like use the map in the sky. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what I got from it. Like I, I thought maybe they were like looking at like a hologram of the map, mm -hmm. perhaps. So, but I might be wrong. Who knows? But then we get uh, Balin doing his best uh, Darth Vader and just mowing down a bunch of New Republic troops. I swear to God, you better not be like a cousin of Skywalker. Like there better not be no tie-ins there. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why do you think that's gonna happen? Just because every Skywalker has to have a hallway fight now. <laughs> it's gonna be a new thing. That goes with any action, anything uh. at this point. <laughs> and honestly, I'm all for it. I love a good like you know hallway fight scene. Mm -hmm. But after all this, we do see Sabine looking at a hologram of Ezra, who we know is going to be part of the series. Um, he's played by who, Christian? Um, Iman Isfandi. I will say I'm really excited to see Ezra and to like actually find out what, you know, he's been up to this entire time. Um, like, has he just been riding space wells or, you know, um, like how powerful is he with the force? There's also mm -hmm. a moment after, you know, the Ezra hologram scene where it looks like Ahsoka is battling against an Inquisitor. Yeah, because I mean, it's definitely the Inquisitor lightsaber. But I don't know if it's someone just utilizing it or if it's actually an Inquisitor. Because Yeah, I, I would think that the Inquisitors wouldn't be active at this point. Yeah. So maybe it's like a rogue Inquisitor. I don't know. One that escaped <laughs> Vader's grasp. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. And like I said, they kind of pick and choose what they want uh -huh. to follow when it comes to the comics and everything. And I don't think we've ever really found out like exactly how many Inquisitors there hmm. truly are. So there might still be some out there, I guess. Um, there are as know, many as they need. Some, <laughs> this is true. But like some have been speculating, like maybe this has to do with, you know, time travel. Like, you know, are we seeing Ahsoka at different points in time like mm -hmm. throughout this trailer? I don't know. I kind of hope that's not the case, but, you know, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'd be disappointed with a time travel story, but I understand because it comes from that with Ezra having time traveled. So I don't, I just don't want it. <laughs> to put it that. It's always such a headache. Uh -huh. It is a headache. I mean, I guess it could be okay. I mean, Avengers Endgame was able to pull it off where it didn't have me like banging my head against the wall at the end uh -huh. of the movie. So um, it can't be done. I just, if they do, you know, use time travel. I hope it's just kind of like, you know, dancing around it. And it's not like the entire plot of the show. Well, yeah, I mean, if you go back in time, why aren't you killing Palpatine? 
you know like exactly because it becomes <laughs> such a mess like it's like okay well if you can go back in time then why don't you do you know a b and c um, uh-huh. you know to avoid x y and z so i don't know like it's just it just opens such a big can of worms that you know and raises so many questions it's just not worth it it really is it's <laughs> But anyway, we go straight montage mode with just a bunch of scenes of Ahsoka looking awesome, you know, doing one of her incredible high jumps, smashing through a window. Through, yeah. well, well, no, there's one where she's jumping down from somewhere, and oh, okay. then there's one where she smashes a window with her lightsabers and jumps through it. So, I mean, if you watch Clone Wars, like the first like three seasons, all she's doing is jumping off of things. Uh-huh. So, I mean, this was you know very Ahsoka. Um, but then, um, at the end of the trailer, we see the character, the droid, uh, is it Hugh Yang, Christian? Is that how yeah, you pronounce Hugh it? Yeah, Um, who's gonna be voiced by D- David Tennant, who voiced him in The Clone Wars, um, and he's a lightsaber smith. He teaches younglings on how to construct their lightsabers. So I have no idea what the hell he's doing here in the trailer and what that could possibly mean. Um, but, I mean, it's cool to see him. I mean, and then that's like a big flag for me. Is like, is that her going into the past to see Hugh Yang, or is Hugh Yang survived this law, or is it a flashback scene oh, with her constructing that. her lightsaber? Maybe mm. because uh, you mentioned it earlier with like there being a story reason for their orange lightsabers. Mm-hmm. I would, I wouldn't be surprised because you know Ahsoka. Um, we've never seen her actually do it. But Ahsoka went through the process of purifying her crystals and shit like that to make them white. Yeah, that's right. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they like turn, you know, these two characters good and they purify, you know, their crystals for this show. Yeah, it's a possibility, right? Hmm. Um, Also, we totally forgot to mention that we found out that Lars Mikkelsen will be playing the live action version of Thrawn, uh, which makes perfect sense since he voiced the character in Rebels. Hmm. But like I said up front, I thought this trailer was epic. Um, It was the perfect kind of trailer where it showed you just enough, but didn't like give you really any story whatsoever. Um, It just, you know did his job and got me incredibly excited for the series which is going to be coming out in august right did we get an exact date for it no just august window okay but i gotta admit like even though it's a jam-packed year with a lot of you know great shows and um you know films being released uh ahsoka though might be on the top of my list of you know most anticipated like i mean like especially after this trailer um mm-hmm. it just you know pushed all the right buttons for me yeah I, I mean i can't imagine you know the version of me that saw that first animated film with her in it uh seeing her become this type of character oh you know now <laughs> i i hated that i yeah. hated her at the beginning Snips. i was like this yeah it was awful <laughs> and then it, they really grew her i mean dave filoni did a fantastic job with her character arc and now yeah. i'm super excited for august you well know? i think that's part of it too it's like we got to watch the character really grow and develop mm-hmm. over the years and you know that's you know part of what makes her so endearing um you know i mean we've you know said it before on the podcast that she's you know one of our you know favorite star wars characters at this point um and that says a lot because we've got a lot of favorite star wars characters um yeah i mean i don't remember christian like did she rank above uh admiral akbar when we ranked our uh star wars characters or all time i think 
favorites? I think it was pretty even, you know. I think okay. it was like was it a tie? No, obviously Ahsoka <laughs> was way higher. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody needs to go back and check that. <laughs> Honestly, during that list, I wouldn't be surprised if Ahsoka wasn't even on it at the time. No. You know? <laughs> was that before but, uh, the final season of Clone Wars was released? Yeah, it was way before the final okay. season. Okay, well, maybe at some point we need to revisit that list. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, my my favorite moment is still gonna be, I think, Vader versus Ahsoka. So, oh, you're talking <laughs> about moments? Well, yeah, the moment list. Well, I don't know. That, I mean, there's been a lot of great moments since that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that might be a fun uh, countdown to revisit. Yeah, you know, because we on did the Patreon. We- <laughs> sure make people pay christian <laughs> but maybe in all seriousness like we'll do another star wars month right because that was like we did multiple countdowns right mm-hmm. okay so yeah maybe we'll do another like star wars month um yes yeah. ultimate star wars countdown list two volume two right okay yes all right but whatever enough shop talk uh we've got plenty more star wars celebration news to get into All right, up first, Lucasfilms announced a trio of new Star Wars films that will span across multiple eras of the franchise. Yes, Kathleen Kennedy showed off a new timeline of eras, which three films representing the past, present, and future were announced. In the past, James Mangold will be bringing us a film set 25,000 years before any canon story so far called Dawn of the Jedi, featuring the prime Jedi who started one of the Jedi Orders on Octo. Uh, Mangold has described the picture as a biblical epic exploring the origins of the first Force users. Mocha should not to start things off on a sour note, because... James Mangold is a tremendous, you know, director, but I'm not quite sure I really want this film. Um, I just feel like when we get so deep into like the lore and everything like that, and we mm-hmm. go so far back to the point where we're actually seeing like people discover the force for the first time and, you know, like how exactly everything works, like it almost demystifies, you know, everything. I don't know. And maybe I'm just still sore after George tried to force the idea of midichlorians on us, you know, during the prequels. Uh So, like, that just left such a bad taste in my mouth that, like, I don't know, man. Like, I just don't want to get, like, too deep in the weeds when it comes to, like, the Force, I guess. I mean, yeah, as long as it's not the Prime Jedi doing blood tests on all of his, you know, students, it... I, I can see there's a potential for like a big mystic story. And li- there. I mean, James Mangle is a, like I said, an awesome artist. So I'm sure uh-huh. <laughs> it's probably going to end up being amazing. It's just the concept itself is just kind of a turnoff. But once that first trailer arrives, you know, I'm going to be like, oh, this, this, looks, uh-huh. this looks fantastic. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm just, um, I'm just figuring Jedi, but it's primitive. It's just, you know, yeah, that's, I don't know. <laughs> The premise just doesn't do anything for me, I guess. Mm. So, but you know me, like I'm easily swayed by a good trailer. So (laughs) I'm sure I'll be singing a different tune soon. Uh, And we don't have any dates for any of these uh, announced movies, right? No, no dates yet. Which is smart. You know, Mm. why pigeonhole yourself? (laughs) Because then you just have a bunch of fans like us asking a whole lot of questions like, where's so-and-so? You know, just take your time and don't worry about meeting some, you know, self-imposed deadline 
know, just put out, you know, quality films. The next film announced was Dave Filoni's feature um, that will play as a conclusion to the story being built across The Mandalorian, Book of Boba Fett, and, and the Ahsoka series, which will most likely probably show the end of the New Republic era and probably move us into, you know... The First uh, Order. The First Order, yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, from what we got with this week's episode of The Mandalorian... That definitely looks like the road we're traveling down right now, mm -hmm. which honestly, even though I have my issues with the sequel trilogy, I'm kind of excited to see what went down to bring upon the rise of, you know, the First Order. Because, you know, technically, like during the sequel trilogy, like the New Republic is still functioning. Like they're still like, you know, that's why they're the resistance and not the rebels, because the New Republic mm -hmm. is still the, the power structure. Now they're in absolute danger of losing it all. But, you know, they're still out there. It's more of a case of like exactly like how do the remnants of the Empire, you know, form this new galactic, you know, power that seems to even be a bigger threat. I mean, we've said it before on the podcast that Filoni worked magic with the Clone Wars, you know, animated series. It really ended up enhancing and elevating the prequels. So hopefully... You know, he can kind of do the same thing for the sequel trilogy. Yeah, because there's a lot of untapped potential with characters in the sequel trilogy that they could really expand and explore on. So it'd be fun to see what you know yeah. he's capable of after that. But if they give him more shows, which they will. Like we still but... <laughs> don't really understand who Snoke was or or what the deal is with like Captain Phasma or the Knights mm -hmm. of Red. I mean, there's a lot of unanswered questions there. So, I mean, there's a lot of potential for, you know, filling in some of those giant, like, holes story-wise. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's going to be quite a task if he can pull it off, but I don't know, in Felonia, I trust. I'll be really interested, too, to see exactly when this film comes out, since it's supposed to be the accumulation of all the ongoing Disney Plus series. Because mm -hmm. you got to figure we're getting at least one more season of Mandalorian, if not more, because I believe Favreau said that he's got a couple more seasons planned when uh, this uh, when this season originally premiered. And also, like, who knows, like, the season count on Ahsoka or, you know, Book of Boba Fett. Because we also heard rumors that, you know, that could be possibly getting another season. Um, so Filoni's film could be, like, five to, like, ten years down the line, honestly. I mean, the Mandalorian seasons take, like, two years to come out. Yeah, I do like the idea of like the finale coming in the form of a feature film, though. Like, I feel like that will make it feel more like operatic and, you know, huge, mm -hmm. um, you know, really bringing home the importance of everything that we've got to watch on, you know, on Disney. But since it seems like the film is most likely going to be a precursor to the First Order and the events of the sequel trilogy, it does feel like we're being set up for a lot of tragedy and heartbreak. Yeah, we're all going to shed a tear when Polly Motto goes and, you know, the mods don't make it. You know, <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> you know you'll be crying your popcorn if something happens to Grogu, Christian. Come on now. Nothing's going to happen to Grogu. Oh, uh, we'll see. He's going to be in an even bigger mecha suit by then, taking on everyone. So No, man. Him and Boba Fett are going to be riding that mythosaur. I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds more likely. <laughs> 
And then our third announced film will be a sequel to the sequel trilogy taking place 15 years after Rise of Skywalker being directed by Charmaine Obeyed Chinoy. Uh, the film will continue on with Rey's journey in rebuilding the Jedi Order, which Daisy Ridley actually came on stage to, you know, officially announce that she will be reprising the role. I don't know, Christian, how did you feel about this announcement? I mean, honestly, I was surprised with just how much the, you know, how much of a reaction Ray has had. People reacting to that trilogy kind of poorly. I thought they might want to scrub their hands and, you know, go in a new direction. But I'm also, you know, Ray is a good character at the end of the day. You can do a lot with her, and I'd like to see where that story was going. Even if I didn't like Rise of Skywalker, I'm interested to see, you know, if they can, you know, turn this around and make a better story out of it in the future with her, you know, creating this new Jedi Order. Yeah, my issue with the sequel trilogy is never the characters that they introduced. Like, I actually mm -hmm. love all the characters that they gave us. And I was a fan of Force Awakens. So I just felt like they let the characters down at the end of the day with their lack of cohesive storytelling and ultimately a, a true vision. Um, it kind of felt like they were just flying by the seat of their pants, you know, in Rise of Skywalker and, you know, mm. just giving us a whole lot of fan service. Like after this announcement came out, there were already fans clamoring for the return of Kylo Ren. I was like, what the fuck? Have we not what? learned <laughs> anything, people? <laughs> That's how we got in this mess in the first place, you know? And they fucking shoehorned this weird, like, romance between Kylo and Rey in Rise of Skywalker because, you know, like everyone was shipping them. Um, I was the, like, the man is dead. <laughs> yes. I love the idea of her shepherding a new Jedi Order. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if something has happened that, you know, makes her feel like she needs to bring back the Jedi. Because we do know that this film is supposed to take place 15 years after the events of Rise of Skywalker. So, like, has something happened that, you know, she's made this decision that she needs to bring back the Jedi? Also, there's a lot of like potential to get closure for other characters, you know, from the series, you know, like Finn, you know, um, who we know has become force sensitive, um, you know, during the events of uh, Rise of Skywalker. So like, you know, has she trained him to become a Jedi? So maybe like he's also assisting her in this new mission. Um, I don't know. Like, you know, like I said, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the characters in those films. It's just... They just didn't do them justice at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And this is only supposed to be one film, right? Yes, it's not going to be a trilogy. Um, and I mean, Kathleen Kennedy made sure to say, like, we're going to go in kind of a different direction with that. Like, they might we're not gonna do We're going to wait and see trilogy. if the film is successful, uh -huh. and then we'll decide whether or not it's going to be a trilogy. Which is smart, hey. Yes. <laughs> as long as they have, like, a vision to start things off and they know where they're going at the end of the day you know if they do decide to do a trilogy i'm all for it but mm -hmm. you know but once again it needs to be a cohesive vision did they mention like any order that these three films will be released in though like are they coming out in the order of the timeline like past present and future well i mean that was left you know ambiguous and i feel like by design you know yeah so in case they need to but I feel like based off these announcements alone, just like even reading these out to you, I mean, it sounds like James Mangold's probably going to come out first and then maybe um, this one uh, with Daisy Ridley, just because I feel like we have a lot more time until uh, the 
you know, Mandalorian finish uh, happens. And I believe it came out that even though it wasn't officially announced that Taika's film is still greenlit, um, he's just currently working on the script. So they're just giving him all the time that he needs. Well, I mean, it sounds like he's going to be working on that after another story we talk about later on. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, anyway, moving on, uh, we got a huge casting announcement for the upcoming Star Wars series, The Acolyte. At the end of the High Republic panel, Star Wars The Acolyte's executive producer, Leslie Headland, was joined by the lead cast on stage as they revealed the first footage to fans at the con. The cast features Lee Jong-Jae, Amandala Stenberg, Jody Turner-Smith, Manny Jacinto, Daphne Keene, Carrie Ann Moss, Dean Charles Chapman, Charlie Barnett, Junis Sutamu, and Rebecca Henderson. Rebecca Henderson at the event was also revealed to be playing uh, Vernestra Rowe, a Jedi who first appeared in Charles Soule's The Light of the Jedi comic, followed by playing a major role in the High Republic novels. Along with that, fans were treated to a full-size Wookiee Jedi at the panels, who will be played by Junis Sutamu. Currently, the project is still filming but is set to release sometime in 2024. So when I told my daughter that we're going to be getting a live action version of Vanestra, she got extremely excited. Um, she's a big fan of the High Republic books. She's currently reading the um, young adult line. Uh, Vanestra is like one of the main characters, and I think by her reaction, maybe her favorite character of the series. The High Republic series has a growing fan base. Um, like, I know for a fact that, like, my daughter's not the only person in her grade who's, like, currently reading those books. So, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of people looking forward to this series. Uh, and I'm, I'm definitely intrigued by it. Um, I know yeah, I've been curious since day one. So. Yeah, yeah. I, we might have to have Eva guest host though to kind of fill in the blanks because <laughs> I really know nothing about uh -huh. what's going on in the series currently, and the stories like cross over like multiple different mediums. Like I know there's like a couple different like comic books going on right now about the High Republic, and like I said, there's at least three book series that I know of based around the era. So yeah we might need some uh crypt notes <laughs> also i like i dig the fact that like it seems like the story that they're going with is kind of like the rise of the sith so mm -hmm. we'll get to see exactly like what happens to bring that on because i don't believe at this point it, like the sith are a factor at all in any of the high republic series so we should be actually like witnessing like the origin story i mean it sounds like a reverse and or situation where it's just like the jedi are just not prepared mm -hmm. for a dark side user at all did you say this was coming out again christian uh they they only said next year they haven't given a okay. like solid like month gotcha well, speaking of next year, uh, we got a release window for season two of Andor. Andor showrunner Tony Gilroy came out to talk season two, where they gave us an August 2024 release window, along with Tony telling us that the end of Andor would set us up right into Rogue One, where we first see him at the Ring of Kefrain. Yeah, I think he actually mentioned this before in an interview, um, that the series would bring us right up to the point where we meet Andor mm -hmm. in Rogue One. I'll admit I'm kind of sad that it's only going to be two seasons um, because I absolutely love the first season. And I'm hoping that fans eventually discover it because apparently no one watched it. Uh, <laughs> I'm just glad that like season two was already greenlit um, mm -hmm. because, yeah, the ratings were supposed to be just awful, which I'm, I'm really surprised by because it was a great show. Speaking of uh, great shows coming to an end, we also found out that uh, 
Bad Batch season three will be happening in 2024 and it will also be its final season. I don't know about you, Christian, but I still got like three episodes left of Bad Batch um, season two to watch. Uh, but I've heard nothing but good things. Uh, we'll probably end up doing a review on Patreon, right? Yeah, I, I got seven to watch. Okay. Uh, I, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to just do a quick binge. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> well, anyway, moving on, uh, we got some big reveals for the upcoming Star Wars series Skeleton Crew. The John Watts Helm series Skeleton Crew showed off its list of directors. Um, John Watts is going to be directing alongside David Lowry, The Daniels, Jake Schreier, Bryce Dallas Howard, and Lee Isaac Chung. We also got a few moments with the cast from Jude Law's mysterious but most likely Jedi character overlooking our cast of Star Wars kids, Ravi Kabat Conyers, Kiriana Cratter, Robert Timothy Smith, and Ryan Kira Armstrong. While they made it clear that this series is about a group of kids they also let fans know that this isn't necessarily a children's show as they will be in peril during their grand adventure uh, no release updates were given but still expect this series this year so now we're purposely not doing breakdowns of you know footage that we haven't seen but they did show like some kind of like mini trailer right mm -hmm. i heard rumors that some newly introduced uh space pirates might be making an appearance uh, which I think we actually heard a while back. So mm -hmm. now I don't know if I just forgot about this, but I, I don't believe I knew that uh, Jude Law's character was supposed to actually be a Jedi. I mean, they still haven't confirmed that it's a Jedi, but they're it's it's heavily implied. Okay, is this because of footage? <laughs> I think from footage too, because oh, okay. yeah, articles everywhere are saying maybe he's a Jedi. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Now, it's believed that, you know, because it's the same character from this, you know, the pirate ship, that it might be during the same period as the Mandalorian, uh, which could that also tie in to whatever Dave Filoni's film was? You know what? You're right. And there was a rumor a while back that this would be taking place during this era, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, the post like Return of the Jedi era. I forgot what they're calling it. And they actually gave us a timeline, right? Like a new timeline. Yeah, for the timeline, we have the Dawn of the Jedi, the Old Republic, the High Republic, Fall of the Jedi, Reign of the Empire, Age of Rebellion, the New Republic, Rise of the First Order, and New Jedi Order. So the Fall of the Jedi, is that the prequels? The Fall of the Jedi would be the prequel era. Got you, got you. And then what is the era that uh, Return of the Jedi, like Mark? And is the new the new Republic era is the era that we're currently in with the Mandalorian, right? Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So we're thinking that the skeleton crew possibly takes place during that era. Yeah, during the New Republic era. So for the Reign of the Empire era, what actually takes place during that? I'm assuming it's you know Andor's time period. Anything before Episode Four. So like the Bad the Batch, then, right? Actually. Would take place. Yeah. During mm -hmm. that era. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Well, anyway, uh, so speaking of the fall of the Jedi era, um, it was announced that we're also going to be getting a second season of Tales of the Jedi. Um, there was no actual date attached to the announcement, uh, but it sounds like Filoni, once again, is going to be leading the show. Um, I'm honestly just hoping that we get like more episodes this time around. Mm -hmm. um, or like a longer like runtime because I I loved everything we got with that you know that mini series if you will and that was only five episodes right yes was... but they were like they were super mm -hmm. short they're like 
like 10 to 15 minutes long. Also, while we're talking about animated series and before we move on, um, it looks like we finally got a release date for season two of Star Wars Visions. Yeah, it's coming out May 4th this year. So perfect timing. Now, I haven't seen the trailer. I know this time around they weren't going strictly like anime style. Um, how did it look to you? I mean, for me, it felt like they were doubling down on a lot of at least the types of stories that, you know, really picked up in volume one. You know, like it seems like there's a lot more lightsaber play <laughs> coming ahead. But at the same time, um, the art styles are all very, like very drastically different to the point where I feel like it's going to be super interesting to watch each time. It reminded me a lot of what I would see out of like Love, Death and Robots from Netflix. Is it true that one of the segments is supposed to be like claymation? Oh, yeah. hundred percent. Awesome. That's awesome. I'll definitely check that out then. I love me some good claymation. All right, so I think that actually does it for all the Star Wars celebration news. I don't think we're missing anything. Um, so let's go ahead and move on to the rest of the news for the week. And actually, Christian, since we're already running super long news-wise, let's go ahead and do the rest of the story's uh, lightning round style. All right, well, up first, it looks like James Gunn has officially casted his first DCU hero. With confirmation from James Gunn on Twitter, it looks like Frank Grillo, best known for his role as Crossbones in the MCU, along with the Purge franchise, has landed a role in the new DCU as Rick Flagg Sr across live action and animation going forward. Well, moving on to more casting news, uh, this time on the MCU side of things, it looks like we've got a big update for the upcoming Blade reboot. Lead of the X trilogy, Mia Goth, has joined the cast of Blade according to Deadline. The film is still in pre-production with new scripts on the way, but it's still said to debut September 6, 2024. Well, moving right along, it looks like Stranger Things is going to be getting an animated spin-off series coming soon to Netflix. Stranger Things continues to expand its spin-offs with now an animated series in the works for Netflix, which is being produced by Eric Robles and Flying Bark Productions, according to Variety. Eric has um, worked on several animated series as a character designer from the shows like The Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy to Fanboy and Chum Chum. There is currently no release window for this series just yet. Well, up next, it looks like the Akira live action film is reportedly moving forward. Justin Kroll of Deadline brings word that things are moving forward for the live action adaptation of Akira with Taika Waititi directing. Taika recently spoke on how the film is still in early pre-production over at Warner as they're still trying to figure out budgets for everything. But while I have no issues with Taika, I think his style of filmmaking can be great at times. I just haven't been a big fan of his most recent works and I haven't seen him do anything as serious as this. Especially knowing the tone and, you know, cyber punk sci-fi aspects of this classic animated film he's just probably not my first choice when i think about it if anything this would be like the perfect picture for someone like dennis uh villanueva but you know he's been busy doing all the dune stuff actually i believe um jordan peele mentioned uh that at one point he was offered the project and he turned it down because oh, okay. he wanted to work on his um own original material uh, but anyway, we're supposed to be doing lightning round. Moving on, uh, after all their success, it looks like Radio Silence is going to be directing an untitled monster thriller. Deadline claims Radio Silence Productions, the company behind films like the VHS 94 and the recent Scream requels, is working on an untitled monster thriller for Universal. The directing duo of Open and Gillette will be set to direct this one with Chad Villela and several others from Project X Entertainment on as producers. The script came together with Steven Shields' best 
best known for 2020's Hunted on as a writer with Guy Busick, who worked with the directors on Scream and Ready or Not doing revisions. Still no details on what monster this might be or when it might be coming out. Well, just quickly, if they are doing a universal monster character, I hope it's the Wolfman. Um, you know, the last Wolfman film left a lot to be desired. I just feel like there's so much potential there. And I just feel like there's so much potential for a great film there. And I mean, there's such talented directors that I feel like they could bring a lot to the table, like especially if they go the route that The Invisible Man, you know, went, um, you know, the recent Invisible Man uh, remake where they, you know, bring it to modern day. But anyway, last but not least, uh, it looks like there's a Conjuring TV series now being developed. From Hollywood Reporter, we learn of the next project for the Conjuring verse, this time in series form coming to HBO Max. James Wan is said to be in talks to do some executive producing for it, but it's currently unclear if this is replacing or, you know, coinciding with the fourth film Wan mentioned, you know, earlier back in January. I know I'm breaking the lightning round rules once again, but I do feel like the Warren story really like lends itself to kind of like a ghost of the week type series. Yeah. So, I mean, th this just makes perfect sense to me. Like if they decide to stop, you know, making films and they just like kind of focus on like this series, I think that'd be fantastic. TV's where the money's at. Wilkerson this week, Disney definitely stole all the headlines because they also dropped the first Marvel's trailer. Hi. We're looking for Kamala Khan. <laughs> Okay, so our powers are entangled. I can manipulate light energy. And you, I could totally show you. No! No! Not again! Hi. Where's our daughter? Wherever you were. So we're not going to do a breakdown since this was pretty much a teaser trailer um, and there was just a lot of montage, you know, clips going on. Uh, but I thought overall this looked pretty exciting. Um, it looks like a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I do worry that the whole gimmick of them switching places every time they use their powers might grow old after a while. Um, but I'm hoping that it's kind of like just a first act problem that they solve. And then they end up like utilizing it to their advantage. I just don't know if I want the entire plot to revolve around, you know, this issue <laughs> with their powers. I mean, it'll make for some creative fight sequences. Yeah, so eventually, like, if, if it is like something that they have to deal with throughout the entire movie, and there mm. does look like there is a scene, right, where they're kind of like switching places in the middle of yeah. the battle, it does have the potential to be pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, the trailer opens up with Monica Rambeau investigating some kind of like force wall in space. Once she touches it, then all of a sudden she switched places with Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel. And then Ms. Marvel hilariously, when she sees Nick Fury, asks if this is a tryout for the Avengers. I honestly forgot like how much I love Aman uh, Vellani in this role. I have a feeling she's going to end up just really like stealing the whole film. I mean, yeah, we got the whole family, too, which is fun. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Later on, we see Nick Fury show up at the house. And the first thing Iman says is, am I it? <laughs> <laughs> then once uh, Kamala ends up, you know, sparking up her powers, then, then of course, she ends up switching places with Carol. Um, there definitely seems to be some kind of tension between Carol and Monica. Uh, that was hinted at before. I'm kind of suspecting that it might be like kind of an abandonment thing. Since we know that Carol was off planet for a mm. long period of time, um, you know, after the events of, you know, the, 
Captain Marvel. Um, it's also very, you know, Miss Marvel to have to deal with two, you know, angry adults, superheroes, and like have to straighten them out. Yeah, like bring them <laughs> together, right? Speaking uh, of Monica, I was kind of surprised in the beginning of the trailer, they mentioned that they were at a Saber facility, I believe, a Saber space station or something. Okay. Not Sword. Not Sword. That yeah, is weird. So they apparently changed the name of the organization because right wasn't monica part of sword in wandavision and i thought and i could be mistaken that in far from home when we get the end credits scene with uh fury that he was at a sword facility but i could be wrong maybe sword is the overarching you know company and okay. then each facility is named after a different type now, of sword we know that sword was corrupt though Right, mm. so maybe they chose to change the name after that. You know, maybe. optics. It's all about optics, Christian. Right? Yeah, but who? It's it's supposed to be like a super I don't know, Christian, secret. But we do like, know group, that it, like, like the organization that Monica's mom like helped start was Sword. So I don't know. So I'm just I was just kind of taken aback by that. I was also ha Mark. I was also happy to see the Flurkin was back. I forgot the cat's name. What what do they call the Flurkin? Goose. I believe it's Goose. Is right? it Goose? Okay. That's right. And apparently there's a herd of flurkins uh -huh. <laughs> later on in the trailer. That's going to be a mess. So, yeah, right. <laughs> also in the trailer, we got a look at the main villain who's played by Zowie Ashton. For a while, people were speculating that she could be playing L'Oreal, Carol's half-sister, uh, who happens to be Cree. Um, but now it sounds like uh, she's been confirmed to be playing Darben, who is a general who seized control of the Cree Empire. Uh, and ruled for a short time, I guess. I'll be completely honest, I've never heard of her. So her first appearance yeah. was in a Silver Surfer issue in the 90s. So I'm sure so a lot of- So we get a, a Silver Surfer time? Oh, well, maybe. <laughs> but uh, I will tell you, there'll be a lot of collectors out there uh, on eBay trying to hunt down uh -huh. that issue. When we see her, she's holding a giant hammer, uh, very similar to the one that I believe uh, Ronan the Accuser uh -huh. was holding. Um, you know, she's surrounded by a bunch of other Kree. Um, you know, in the first Captain Marvel film, even though I did enjoy it, I did feel like it had a villain problem. And that's kind of my concern here. I'm hoping that this time around, the Kree make an interesting enough villain for the Marvels to go up against. And they're not just there as like glorified, like, you know, cannon fodder. Because I was definitely disappointed uh, to find out that she doesn't have like strong connections to Carol. Um, that just felt like the more interesting story. Now, you do have to wonder, like, is this the real Nick Fury that we're dealing with here? Mm. Like, because this takes place after the Secret Invasion series, or so we think. So, you know, could this possibly be a scroll or, you know, is Secret Invasion actually taking place after this time-wise? I can't imagine that, though. Like, Kevin Feige usually has his ducks in a row. I could see that being Talos. Yeah, we know that Talos has played nick fury in the past i mm. mean he was nick fury for all of uh, far from home right um although it doesn't look like talus is faring very well in that secret invasion trailer so who knows that's a good point but yeah i mean really th there's tons of like great action sequences that go by really quickly because it is once again a montage trailer yeah. it looks like at some point miss marvel got like an upgrade for her costume i'm guessing that probably is going to happen like at the end of the film or maybe it's somehow tied into like 
you know, them figuring out how to stop them from switching places every time they, you know, use their powers. Um, you know, if, if they do, you know, go with a storyline reason for it. Um, or maybe it's just like, you know, her making the team finally, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's how the film ends. Because I'm, I'm sure that's probably how the film's going to end. <laughs> They're officially an Avenger. But anyway, I mean, like you said at the top, this looks fun. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, when does this come out? I keep forgetting it was pushed back so far. It's uh, November 10th. Oh, wow. So we got quite a wait. All right. Well, before we move on, Christian, uh, we also did get like a behind the scenes, like making of Penguin trailer. Um, it, there was quite a bit of footage in the trailer. But once again, it was very much like, you know, clip heavy. But I will Mm. say from what we got to see, like, it it looks good. I mean, it looks like a straight, like, gangster film, though. Um, You know, really just about, like, the rise of the Penguin, Um, which I'm I'm all for. Uh, I'm guessing this takes place after the events of uh, the Batman. Because if it's after the film, you think then you would have, like, a Batman problem, right? Like, Like, the Batman would have to make an appearance. I mean, unless his hands are full, you know, trying to help the people of the destroyed city. I don't know. Yeah, but... I guess. I guess. Well, as I'm seeing here on Collider, it does say it's uh, coming right after the events of the Batman and supposed to lead into the Batman 2. Gotcha. So maybe, I mean, maybe we do get a Batman appearance. I'm not complaining. No, I'm not either. <laughs> but I doubt it. I'm guessing that, like you were saying, that it's probably like the Penguin's rise of power, like just right underneath the nose of the Batman, like in the shadows. And now for the nerds breakdown of The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 7. Spoilers ahead. Any word on when he will be able to participate in the Shadow Council? Oh. With respect. Our one hope for success relies upon the secrecy of his return. Captain, secrets are my stock in trade. I hear whispers from one end of the galaxy to another, and never a word of Thrawn. We start off on what I believe is some of the lower levels of Coruscant as G-68 goes to a secret meeting spot with an Imperial probe droid. Of course, the hologram projects the very free Moff Gideon, who is shocked to hear that the Mandalorians bested the space pirates that he apparently sent to Novera 7. And even more shocked to learn that Bo-Katan was amongst them as he believes that the two factions just simply can't get along. You think this is Coruscant? Yeah. Because this looked yeah, like I, it was straight from fucking Blade Runner. Like, I thought it actually looked more akin to where we saw uh, Cassian at in the beginning of uh, the first season when he's looking for his sister. Like, he goes to that space uh, brothel. But it's just, like, her being in those parameters, yeah. G-68. It would you know, make she, sense. It would probably be hard for her to leave planet and then come back and not be caught, you know? Also, like, how stupid does this make the New Republic that a fucking giant-ass probe droid is floating around and no one notices? And, like, she's just having this meeting in, in a back alley. Uh huh. With a fucking a hologram look. projection of Moff Gideon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they can just talk through comms. Like he didn't need to Knowing physically that the have a. New Republic is so incompetent <laughs> that they won't actually catch you. Well, with that being said, I was super excited to see Moff Gideon back. It's about damn time. In learning this information, he immediately requests backup to stop any potential movement towards the Mandalorians returning home. Gideon then goes before a secret shadow council of former Imperials. Here we not only see the likes of Thrawn's right hand, Paleon, but General Hux's father, Commandant Hux. Now, Paleon was a heavily featured character in the uh, Rise of the Empire 
uh, books. Um, and then he also made, I think, a voice-only appearance in Rebels. But this is the first time we're seeing him in live action. And then when it comes to General Hux's dad, I, I believe in one of the ancillary books he's featured and he's like a big part of you know the rise of the first order but i could be mistaken and as we continue on it definitely seems like this is all precursors to the first orders and your know, first big move while hux is working on project necromancer which must be the resurrection of the emperor Paleon seems to be setting up some master plan for Thrawn's arrival, which while Paleon keeps trying to get everyone to stay on target for, Gideon is quick to point out that Thrawn has yet to join them in any of their meetings, and that the other leaders here are all growing impatient with how resources are being used by both these projects. I really enjoyed watching Moff Gideon like pull everyone's strings here, because you definitely know Gideon knew what button to push to get what he wants, you know, and like Peleon and Hux had no choice but to placate him. Mm -hmm. Commandant Hux is quick to turn things on Gideon by pointing towards what happened with Dr. Pershing and his research along with uh, Gideon's extreme request for military resources as of late. But Gideon explains what they're actually there for, as he believes the Mandalorians are going to attempt to take back Mandalore, which seems to be a key place in their plans as this quickly shifts the mood back in Gideon's favor, as Hux and Peleon grant him his request for aid with wiping out the rest of the Mandalorians. So do you think Gideon ordered G68 to basically mind wipe Pershing as a power play to stop, as a power play to stop what Hux is doing with the Necromancer project? No, I think Gideon's not supposed to be doing anything with, you know, splicing on his end. And it's clear that he's been doing stuff with Dr. Pershing. And Dr. Pershing would be aware of this, so gotta erase his mind, right? Gotta erase any memory of anything that he did with Gideon. Gotcha, that makes sense. Um, but I would also think that a welcome bonus to getting rid of Pershing is it probably throws a wrench in, like, you know that necromancer project since mm -hmm. i doubt gideon actually wants the emperor to return um you know because obviously gideon's all about as much power as he can possibly you know gain um i mean you do have to admire the balls on gideon though like he literally just walks past like a bunch of vats of obvious uh -huh. clones before he goes into this meeting um, that's just like one room over especially knowing that he's not supposed to be like messing around with cloning I will say before we move on, it always drives me nuts thinking about what the people on the other side are seeing with the like holograms, because during that Gideon starts just spinning during part of his fucking conversation. And I'm like, are they just in a room watching Gideon on a hologram spin in front of them? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Or maybe you're just putting way too much thought into it. I don't I am. I am. <laughs> I really love this moment, like finally getting to see, you know, exactly what the plan is for the remnants and how like part of the plan really has to do with them coming off as just, you know, warlords at this point. And they're trying to convince, you know, the New Republic that they don't exist. 
uh, while all along they're all working towards the same goal. Well, at least supposedly working towards the same goal. On Navarro 7, the people are alerted by the arrival of Bo-Katan's fleet, especially since it contains former Imperial ships. In landing, Bo and her clan approach the Children of the Watch, at first in their helmets, as I thought this was going to be, you know, a sign of respect, but then the tension thickened as her people removed their helmets before them. But the armor is quick to break the ice by offering them a feast in the meantime. Yeah, that was absolutely a power play, by the way. The way uh, they remove their helmets and everything. Like, fuck you bogus. guys. <laughs> How badass, by the way, did that Star Destroyer look with the uh, Mythosaur symbol on it? Low, yeah, it's awesome. I'd still be terrified. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Grief Karga then comes bearing gifts for Mando as he offers him an expensive bottle of Coruscant Hooch. But that's not all. Back at Karga's office, we find out what happened to IG-11 as his body has been stripped into essentially a mecha for baby Grogu to ride in. Grogu is quick to try out the new, you know, IG-12 that Mando wants absolutely nothing to do with. But Grogu, with his brand new yes and no buttons, makes his voice heard on wanting to keep the droid body. Am I wrong? I mean, this is kind of fucked up, right? Like, the fact that he's, like, piloting like the corpse of his dead friend essentially here yeah and i'm still surprised that mando has zero feelings towards ig11 after you know saving their asses i think he i think he has feelings for him but like once he realizes there's no way to actually get him back online he just kind of moved ahead with his mission i am glad that like the story thread that they started in like the first episode at least you know went somewhere you know with grogu getting this like newfound armor pretty much they could have at least put in some kind of like protective shield for him though i guess he has his baskar armor so well i'm sure that's going to come to play right like uh, in the last episode like he'll get like shot out of the thing and then you know he'll be okay because of the armor well that knight tries to you know begin rallying the people by explaining what their next mission is going to be a scouting run to the great forge of mandalore while the fleet remains in kind of mandalorian airspace Needing recruits for this mission, of course, Din Djarin and Grogu volunteer, along with Axe Wolves and Koska Reeves, plus Paz Vizsla and the Armorer, and several others from both clans. So I was initially taken aback by the Armorer volunteering to also join the mission. But then I did remember that she actually was part of the battle uh, on Navarro when they helped Grief out with the pirates. Mm -hmm. So I guess it shouldn't have been such a big surprise. I mean, there's other things, though, that were a little suspicious that she does uh, later on in this episode, but we'll talk about it when we get there. On the day of the mission, Paz Vizsla is shocked to see the destruction across Mandalore, while Axe Wolves grunts about actually being there when it happened. The two sides drop down to the planet's crystallized surface and are shocked when a ship of sorts gliding across the crystals approaches. What's up with uh, Favaro's pirate fetish this season? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was definitely surprised by the way that the ship just comes gliding in out of nowhere. Uh -huh, right. I mean, it's cool and all, but it just, I mean, and, and there's been other pirate themed characters you uh -huh. know, throughout the history of Star Wars, but it just feels like we've got like this heavy emphasis on like you know this like pirate motif this season we find out on this ship are mandalorians who never left mandalore even after the purge but upon hearing bo's voice recognize her immediately and fly over to pledge their loyalty once more having been struggling for food bo and company feed these stragglers who tell their side of what you know they believed happened on the planet as they think it was bombed due to the mandalorians defiance however bo corrects them as she explains before 
before the whole table they're eating, she attempted to give up her power to Gideon in order to save everyone, but Gideon still betrayed them nonetheless. Hence why he ended up with the Darksaber to begin with. I thought this was an important moment to really get into the headspace of, you know, Bo, and also to show, like, mm -hmm. that she is a compassionate leader and that she does truly care about her people. It's not just about the power. But at the same time, it also adds just another wrinkle to, you know, why Bo feels so much guilt for what happened, you know? Mm. I mean, the fact that she not only surrendered, but then she got duped by Gideon, you know, into, like, giving up even more. And then, and then he still ended up destroying her planet. Um, it just shows you what a fucking bastard yeah. Moff Gideon is. Awful. The attention then shifts to the armor as their new friends ask, you know, where they were during the actual purge. In which the armor explains they were hidden on the Moon Concordia, which so happened to be a former base for Death Watch. But when asked if she was Death Watch, she explained that it does not exist any longer. The group split into separate warring factions and ultimately destroyed themselves. Bo reminding everyone that the the, you know, constant warring factions of their groups is the reason for Mandalore's downfall. Yeah, this was another moment where it kind of like raised flags for me. And it might have been put in there as, you know, just kind of a red herring. But, you know, the episode is called Spies. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't know if I trust the armor completely. I don't know. I, I, I just I can't imagine them pulling the trigger on a, like a twist like that where the armor who's been with us from like day one is a is I mean, a spy she was this whole time on Navarro, you know in the first season which was yes. controlled by moff gideon and she's the one who put the idea in bo katan's head to reunite mm. the clans which seems to be moff gideon's plan to get them all together so he could just wipe them out um i don't know man but, I mean, there's definitely a strong possibility that this is just a red herring and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we have another traitor in our midst. Later, Din Djarin meets up with Bo on the ship to talk about, you know, the revelations dropped at dinner. Bo is fearful that she may not be able to, you know, keep their factions united, claiming the Darksaber is the only thing keeping this thing going. However, Mando reminds her, you know, just how little the Darksaber means to him and his way of life, going even further to explain that it's honor, loyalty, and character that is important to him and why he nobly serves Bo-Katan. I thought this was really, like, important conversation. I wish they would have had it, like, maybe mid-season. Because I think it would have given a lot of context to the overall narrative of why, like, Mando is following Bo and, you know, what's his, like, motive um, throughout this season. Like, don't get me wrong, like, it was fine in this episode, you know, and this did feel like the right moment. But when you look at the overarching story for Din, it, it does feel definitely a little murky this season <laughs> mm -hmm. where it just felt a little like almost directionless um but if like up front like after maybe she saves him he has this conversation with her and how he'll you know because of honor he's willing to follow her no matter what you know like he doesn't give a shit about pomp and circumstance you know he doesn't care about the dark saber he's made that clear from the get-go so you know, I don't know. I, I really appreciate that they at least put this in here. Hey, it's all about hustle, loyalty, respect, Damon. I hate you. <laughs> Why do you have to ruin That's everything? That's all I was thinking about when he said that. For some reason. You're the worst. <laughs> boop, boop. 
<laughs> While the armorer helps with you know this crew's wounded, she suggests bringing them to the fleet and volunteers doing it herself. Meanwhile, those who you know are still able to fight claim they can bring Bo to the Great Forge. All right, Christian. So you're gonna tell me that this didn't seem a little suspicious to you that she decided last minute, right before everything goes down, that she needs to take all the wounded you know, back to the rest of the fleet. It's it's a tad bit suspicious. You're not wrong there. Uh -huh. But at the same time, like every time I think that it's going to be some ridiculous angle like that, I'm always let down. Like, I feel like well, it's, it's never going to be that type of twist. I don't know if it's necessarily a plot twist that I want, but mm -hmm. I feel like they're definitely trying to lead us in this direction. The one hole in that theory of you know, the armorer being a traitor and a spy is the fact that in that opening scene, when you have G-68 talk to Moff Gideon, Moff Gideon is surprised the fact that Bo-Katan and the Mandalorian are working together. Yes. Now, we don't Which... know exactly timeline-wise when that scene takes place, but if the armorer's, you know, working with Moff Gideon, he should know that Bo uh -huh. and the Mandalorian, are, you know, are together. And that Bo and, you know, the children of the mm. Watch are working together. Especially if his master plan is bringing them together to get them all slaughtered. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean there couldn't be another spy involved here. But I definitely feel like they're trying to make her out to be some kind of red herring. Uh, so that makes me believe that there is another twist coming our way. Because there is the one scene that they give us where it shows her on the ship going through the clouds, you know, towards the fleet, and then nothing happens. Yes. And it's like, why was that scene there? Right? It's like, what was... It is weird. It kind of builds up to something and then doesn't give it to us. And I feel like we're going to open on that scene, you know, with the finale. Uh, well, what what if she's working for Thrawn and not Gideon? I, I don't know, man. Maybe. <laughs> I definitely feel like Thrawn is going to be paying Gideon a visit On soon. On the way there, Paz Vizsla and Axe Wolves play some form of space chess in which both sides have different rules for the game. This quickly starts an argument as Paz pulls a vibroblade and challenges Wolves to a fight. Axe Wolves obliges with a stiff knee to Paz Vizsla's face as the two of them go blow for blow. Everyone watches on, including Din and Bo, who say they can't step in as it would cause a bigger divide. However, Grogu in his droid body says otherwise as he splits up the two and presses his, you know, no button again. Mando remarks that he didn't teach him that, alluding to maybe this being another thing that he got from the Jedi. I love watching the Mandalorians throw down um, once again. Um, I'm enjoying how much it seems like the Night Owls use their jetpacks. I mm. mean, there's nothing like a jetpack fueled V trigger. Um, it was pretty fucking badass. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I was glad that this was more about just kind of like relieving some steam, you know, and tension mm. between the two groups and everything. And that they were so, you know, quickly able to kind of squash the beef, 
you know, right after. Nah, they should have been swinging at each other while Grogu was in the middle trying to, like, push them back. You know, real WWE type stuff, uh-huh. right? And he would have just, like, force-launched them across the yes. ship. With the armor on approach to the fleet, Bo and company find themselves running into a Godzilla-like creature, and as they choose to, for some reason, steer towards it instead of away from it, the monster drops its tail onto the ship, causing it to explode. While many of them were able to jetpack away last minute, we watch as some Mandalorians are consumed in flame. Yeah, for a split second, I thought this was going to be the Mythosaur, actually. Yes, I, I was thinking that too. I was like, oh, is the Mythosaur just already out and about for them to fight? Now being near the forge, the group makes their way down. Here they see the ruins of the once great forge whose flames haven't burned in years. But that hasn't stopped the Imperials from clearly mining their precious resource as new Beskar-clad troopers jetpack in and start attacking the Mandalorians. And yeah, we actually got our first look at this armor uh, when Moff Gideon's on his way to meet with the Shadow Council. Do you think they're clones in this armor? That would make sense if he was, because he's talking about creating his own army, but, right? Man, do you think he's he's got like def- like weird clones inside all of those? Maybe it seems like he's trying to like appropriate like the best of all the different cultures, right? Uh-huh. So I wouldn't put it past him to put like more efficient like clone troopers in this Beskar armor. You know, and he's probably also trying to like give them like midichlorian like lace DNA while he's at it. While being pinned down, X Wolves decides to go out for reinforcements as Paz Vizsla gives him cover to fly through a small hole. But even after that, the troops start retreating back as the Mandalorians give chase. So, do you think possibly the treasure could be X? I think there's a heavy possibility. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it was also a little suspicious that he like, well, I'll, uh-huh. I'll go get reinforcements. <laughs> Bye. Um, yeah, it's like I could see I'm, that I'm being like you know thirty seventy X versus. Uh, I could see them kind of setting it up where you know you're thinking it's the armor and then uh-huh. you know it's really X the entire time. So, um, that definitely makes sense. Um, another flaw in the theory of the armor is the fact that she gave Grogu yes. right. But though why? Gideon did want Grogu, though he doesn't have the re- the guy anymore to take his genes, so I guess that doesn't matter. Pershing, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but I mean, I guess you could still be trying to protect him for you know hmm. Gideon's means, but I don't know. It didn't feel that way during that moment, you know, in the show. So I gotta agree. Like, I definitely feel like Axe is probably the more likely candidate to be, you know, the traitor. If there even is a traitor, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could be getting swerved. It could still be Sasha Banks. This could be her heel turn moment. Can't trust Sasha. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Natural born heel right there. Mando shows these posers what it means to wear Beskar as that non-dodging technique of the Children of the Watch comes into full effect as Mando barrels through these new troopers. However, it seems they are being led into an Imperial facility as they see several hangars with TIE fighters at the end of the road. Yeah, this definitely wasn't the best look for this warrior race, right? The fact that they're so easily duped into this trap. Uh-huh. Like they didn't realize that everything started looking real like Imperially also. <laughs> The deeper they went into this cave. Yeah. Um, the hallways were just clearly yeah, like, Imperial facility. I was like, okay. I don't remember this being <laughs> down here. Um, 
I do like the fact that they make sure to show that there is a difference, though, between the Mandalorians and, you know, these troopers just wearing Beskar mm -hmm. armor, that they're still inferior warriors compared to, you know, the Mandalorians. I mean, that was great when he actually just knocks one over and then Bo behind him does a quick shot yes. and they just keep charging down the hallway. Yeah, that's I mean, that's the one thing this season's definitely been doing well is the action sequences. Uh huh. This is when the blast door shut, separating Din Djarin and a few others from Grogu, Bo, and Paz. The troopers there quickly subdue Mando as Moff Gideon makes his big entrance in his brand new dark trooper armor. Oh my god, I thought this was glorious. Um, of course, Moff Gideon like gave himself like this pimped out suit, <laughs> uh -huh. helmet and all. Uh, I loved this. Uh, I was a little disappointed we didn't actually get to see it in action, but I'm I'm sure we'll probably get that in the finale. Um, but yeah, no, this was a great look and Mark. But yeah, this was a great holy shit moment. That armor would only look better with a dark saber in Gideon's hand. Right. I'm surprised that he doesn't have a, like another lightsaber at his own disposal. Mm. You got to figure that he's been like collecting you know, shit. Yeah. I mean, the way that he likes, like I said before, likes to appropriate, like, everything from, you know, all the different, like, cultures. I'm sure he's got a whole, like, Grievous-style arsenal of lightsabers somewhere stashed away. Gideon then begins his villain speech as he makes them aware that he plans on creating an army in Beskar armor, wanting to take the fleet by surprise... Wanting to take the, you know, Mandalorian fleet by surprise, he sends out bombers and interceptors that he was given by the Shadow Council, claiming he will finally complete the Purge of Mandalore before taking Din Djarin off. And this is why Gideon's such a great villain. He's always a couple steps ahead. I mean, you've got to believe that his roots run pretty deep in the New Republic. The fact that there wasn't, like, this giant search party for him when he didn't, like, show up Mm -hmm. You know, for his trial makes you believe that someone must have wiped something from the books. I don't know. It just feels like he's a plan for everything. Uh, during my first watching, I totally missed that they actually took Din Djarin to like another facility. Like, I don't know why I thought he was just like there. So I wonder what his plan for uh, Mando is. Yeah, I was actually surprised that Grogu didn't like lose it and like, you know, try to like, you know, use the force to take down that door. I guess maybe they just didn't want to show him with a side of anger. Yeah, that's true. I'm wondering if Grogu ends up pulling a Luke and he ends up like force crushing that suit around uh, Moff <laughs> <laughs> at some point. Before Moff Gideon can leave himself, Bo makes herself known. Gideon is quick to ask her for the Darksaber back, but instead she uses it to cut a way out from their rear blast doors. Gideon then sicks his troops on them as they try to retreat, but Paz creates cover and ultimately stays behind for them, much to Bo's dismay. With his minigun overheating entirely, Paz relies on his fist as he takes out the remaining troopers. However, there was an additional request Gideon made earlier, and that was for three Praetorian guards who make quick work of Papa Paz as our show comes to a close. Well, this was definitely a hero's end. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm absolutely sorry to see, you know, Vizsla go, but man, he went out like a fucking boss here. I love the fact that he was like firing his gun so much that it actually started just glowing red hot. Yeah, um, that was awesome. And, you know, to the point where he couldn't use it anymore. And then he just went ahead and decided to go hand to hand and he was still able to take out a lot of those, you know, 
you know, Beskar armor troops. Once again, demonstrating like the difference between, you know, a Mandalorian and some just average run of the mill trooper. Yes. Um, I love the inclusion of the Praetorian guards. Um, the throne room, you know, battle scene is one of the best parts of Last Jedi. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that they're getting some more screen time. I especially dug like the redesign of the helmets. Um, they looked actually kind of Mandalorian. You know, they had like the T visor and everything like that. Yeah. Um, but we've seen other guards with the similar type of helmets too, like throughout the Empire. I didn't mention it earlier, but you know, Gideon's mask felt very, you know, mall-like. Yes. Because it's red and black. And then we also had the moment at the front where he's walking through the lasers, uh, laser shielding, you know, for his uh secret base and it's very much like maul versus uh qui-gon's little chamber moment i was like i wonder if they're just pulling from that or could he possibly be like some kind of like maul sympathizer maybe maybe um if that's the case i would have to question like how was he able to actually like rise up to the rank of moth um while still being somehow aligned with maul um, unless, like, this loyalty was something just kept secret from the Emperor the entire time. Um, Patience and time. Gideon would do it. I guess. I can see that. I guess. I'm, I mean, he is, you know, a master strategist, so. Mm. But the horns is also something that people are bringing up uh, mm -hmm. to tie him to the armor. Because the armor also has the horn helmet. But that's yes. been something people have been pointing out since, like, season one. It could just be a case of someone just really digging the horn look, uh -huh. honestly. So <laughs> someone on the production team, um, who knows? As you mentioned earlier, I, with everything that was going on with Bo and like kind of her, you know, growth in this one, I, I definitely feel like I would have wanted more of that maybe done earlier in this season. Uh, just just because like especially knowing the character from the clone wars and seeing you know how much of a, like hard-headed she was back then you know that was a massive moment for her to make that kind of decision to save all these people and sacrifice or you know her throne essentially uh for them but and then be betrayed i feel like they could have played into that a little bit more this season altogether. I, I mean, I understand why they did the moment here. Because I think it was important for both clans to hear the truth of actually what went down on that day. Mm. Because also, I don't feel like you need that moment for Din to kind of like pledge his allegiance to Bo. Because he's all about honor. And I think at, you know, after like the second episode, he was already going to follow her to the gates of hell. So, like, you could have had that conversation take place between Din and Bo prior, mm. you know, to this episode and then have this reveal still happen. Now, I do feel like there is a couple other little, like, plot points that they could have taken out of this episode and spread out throughout the season, if that makes sense, um, to kind of really help the overarching narrative and also at the same time really help the audience kind of conceptually understand like the overall direction of where they're headed because you know regardless of me enjoying every episode it did feel a little aimless you know at mm -hmm. certain points where you could have taken the g68 scene and you know just put it at the end of you know the pershing episode and then you could have taken like the shadow council scene and put it at the beginning of you know last episode just kind of a way to like tether everything together but overall I, like i love this episode i think it was the best episode of the season and one of the best episodes of the series so far honestly now with the announcement of the film 
and you know the way that this season has kind of played out like how we've just talked about um and it feeling like things were kind of aimless and slowed down a bit do you think like maybe you know they were like oh we need to you know slowly build up to this movie more i mean i'm sure they have enough you know seasons and stuff that they want to do but at the same time do you think that they were like you know they saw what they did in season two and they were like we did so much now we need to slow it down before we get to a big um climax it could be but i don't know why they would make a conserved effort to you know muddy the waters Mm -hmm. um because people aren't going to be interested in a film if all of a sudden like the series feels half-baked but i gotta say like you know besides last episode like i've enjoyed this season like individual episodes like every single episode i've walked away like saying that that was a really good episode you know so like i understand that like we're kind of wondering like where are we going where are we going it's like mm -hmm. sometimes you just have to be fucking patient and wait like <laughs> i think it's once again it's a product of like this you know series dropping episodes weekly where like if mm -hmm. you would have watched this like binge this you wouldn't like had an issue with you know where the story is going so i mean for me like one bad episode and you know maybe a questionable decision with the dark saber doesn't ruin this entire you know season for me well hopefully that's season finale uh you know, really ties it all together. Sticks the landing, right? We can join us next week for the season finale of The Mandalorian. And watch Christian eat crow when the armorer is revealed to be the traitor. <laughs> She's not. It's probably X. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. This is a public service announcement. Manscaped now has beer products and is going even further with their brand new Weed Whacker 2.0. Go ahead and tell the world the leaders in below the waist grooming are traveling north of your South Pole with their revolutionary grooming products. The new Weed Whacker 2.0 and their new beard line confirms they have all the best tools for your hygiene toolbox. Time for you to upgrade your game by going to manscaped.com and using our code 20NERDSHOW for 20% off plus free shipping. Listeners know that there's no one I trust more with my nutsack than Manscaped. So why not trust them with my beard also? So allow me to introduce you to the Beard Hedger Pro Kit. It's the ultimate package that makes it easier than ever to craft your signature look. It all starts with the cordless electric Beard Hedger. The Beard Hedger is tough on hair but smooth on your face, leading to single stroke efficiency that brings satisfaction one stroke at a time just like your mother. <laughs> this waterproof cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths, all with one guard, so no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. The Pro Kit also comes with four dermatologist tested formulations for your post-trim care. This includes Manscaped's beard shampoo and conditioner, beard oil, and beard balm to moisturize, style, and shimmer your new beard. Plus, the kit has three gifts, a beard brush, a comb, and scissors. So with a nice beard, your face is perfectly groomed, right? Wrong! You need to keep an eye out for those tough-to-trim ear and nose hairs. The brand new Weed Whacker 2.0 offers improved blades and skin-safe technology with virtually no tugging. It's never been so painless to mind your manholes. 
Now that you have your face looking great, you must try Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 for the full body grooming experience. Good news though, the Performance Package 4.0 now comes with the Weed Whacker 2.0 and all the other below the waist grooming products Manscaped is known for. Your significant other will be delighted to see you covering all bases, if you know what I mean. So listeners, get 20% off and free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and make sure to use our code 20NerdShow. Always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. And now it's time for Christian's Corner. So while Sony Interactive may seem all focused on Microsoft lately, they're still working on plenty of things in the background. Most notably was a potential new handheld console that may rival systems like the Switch and Steam Deck. This rumor seems to be even more plausible this week as Sony prepares to bolster its cloud gaming service. Even after companies like Google dropping Stadia and Amazon having you know less than desirable results. The Verge reported this week that Sony is planning to hire 22 people to you know help, help build their cloud. A better cloud gaming service would be great for a handheld system, allowing players not you know, to have to worry about space on the console, and would give players instant access to hundreds of titles. Cloud gaming, while having improved over the years, still isn't without its faults though. But the main thing that you know stopped people from going to systems like Stadia was its lack of exciting exclusives. That's where Sony could really you know get a major win in the cloud gaming space due to their you know many dedicated studios and large exclusive library officially being accessible anywhere you'd like thanks to cloud gaming and their new handheld system it will most likely still be you know a few years till we get any answers on Sony's intentions here but with its biggest competitors like Amazon and Google you know failing in the market it seems like Sony thinks they might have the answer here to really claim cloud gaming for themselves but speaking of services Ubisoft plus is making its way to Xbox across last gen and current gen consoles this service was originally only available on PC and Amazon Luna, but now joining Xbox will get more Ubisoft titles into the hands of those interested in paying the $17.99 for this service. To be honest, when I first saw the headline, I thought had I thought Ubisoft was actually joining Game Pass in the same way that EA has, but unfortunately that's not the case yet. Um, for those unaware, while the service is small, it packs a punch with Ubisoft's heaviest hitters being a part of its you know, accessible library. From the Far Cry franchise to Assassin's Creed and more, you'll be able to get it all for their monthly charge. Right now, I do feel like $17.99 is a tad bit you know, steep for their library, but I could you know, see the potential for Ubisoft Plus in the future, especially if they were to team up with Game Pass, though I'm not sure if they're willing to make a deal like that. But I could totally see that working for them in the same way that, you know, EA has now suckered me into paying for their more expensive package because, you know, you get their brand new games day one now. Having their older titles be available immediately through Game Pass and then, you know, paying a little bit more, maybe the $17.99, to then play the brand new title that came out that Wait. week for other games to be available on the EA service that so it's available through Game Pass. I could totally see Ubisoft taking that same exact approach, but again, that's just me wishing that they would do something like that. Who knows if they would ever consider it. Um, lastly, I wanted to mention that the Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League has been delayed into next year, with its new date set for February 2024. Um, gameplay reactions from those interested have been middling at best. Um, you know, even to me, the game hasn't been all that exciting to look at um, in all their gameplay trailers. 
And while I don't know if, you know, that played into the decision to put more time into it, they stated that it was just a necessary choice for them to, you know, put out so that they could, you know, put out the best quality experience for the players. Being a fan of the Arkham franchise, I do want to see this game be a success, but every time I, you know, see the game, my expectations lower for sure. I just haven't been blown away by anything that they have shown off. Uh, but I could say the same thing about games like, you know, Redfall um, this past year, where now the that people have finally gotten their hands on it and given better previews from a player's perspective, I could see myself potentially enjoying that game more, than, you know, if I had just based it off of my own feelings about the recent trailers. Hopefully this was, hopefully this decision was made though for the betterment of the game and Rocksteady is able to deliver on, you know, another great Arkham Universe game. Because if we follow their track record, this should be awesome, but just they haven't really done very well with the marketing so far. Um, as for the live stream side of the Amazing Nerd Show, uh, we hopped back into Horizon Forbidden West this past weekend. I'm you know still in love with that game. I'm getting better at it finally. Um, I'm starting to actually level up and get, you know, understand what I'm leveling up <laughs> so that I can actually fight these fucking things better. But now, you know, really on my mind is that is that Jedi Survivor trailer that was shown off at Star Wars Celebration. So I'm more excited than ever to finally yeah. you know, hop back into uh, Cal Kestis' story. Um, and we'll most likely be streaming that at the end of the month. So make sure that you are a follower to get our live notifications as we stream every Saturday through Tuesday on Twitch. But all right, now let's move on to wrestling talking about this Cody daycare stuff, okay? I said Cody, didn't I? Oh! I said Cody, and the truth hurts, doesn't it, Max? Because you had a cheerleader, you had a support system in Cody, and I'm a support system for Darby, and a young surfer Sting had a support system too under the, the name Ric Flair. All right, so Christian, this week we're back to our regular scheduled programming, uh, meaning we're going to go ahead and recap Dynamite this week. Uh, I don't know. Uh, overall, it was an okay show. I know you didn't see it. Am I correct? Yeah, I haven't had a chance yeah, to watch it. Yeah, so um, it is Wednesday night, uh, so... You know, it's it's fresh in my mind, at least. So I guess I can handle, uh, you know, doing the driving this week. Uh, you well, better. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're still helping me with the order of the matches because there's uh, no way, you know, even though it was just an hour ago, I, you know, I probably forgot half the card by now. So uh, but let's go ahead and get into it. Uh what do we have up first, Christian? Up first, we had Darby Allen defeating Swerve Strickland. Uh, and this was probably by far my favorite match of the night. Uh, these guys okay, have okay. a long history together in the ring, and it definitely showed. Um, you know, they laid it all out there. It was a hard-hitting affair. Um, you know, they both seem to have a lot to prove. Swerve's just so fucking cool, man. I swear mm. to God. <laughs> He's now aligned uh, with the... What what are they called, Christian? Not the Gates of Agony. Or is it the Gates of Agony? No, I don't, they're the Embassy, right? That's right. The Gates of Agony is actually the tag team within the Embassy. Okay. Is what it is, I think. Um, but the Gates <laughs> of Agony weren't there tonight. It was just Brian Cage and Prince Nana 
or Nana. <laughs> Am I saying that wrong? It's Prince Nana. It's my prince. You better respect uh, him. Sure. Sure he is. <laughs> this is the kind of prince that shows up in your fucking spam. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, no, I don't understand. What What is he the prince of? Uh, uh, Ghana. So it's it's a country. Yes. Yeah, I don't I don't. I don't know how I feel about this merger. Um, you know, I liked I like Brian Cage as muscle for Swerve, but I don't know if I need the Prince Nana of it mm. all, right? So this happened on Rampage. There was a little like, you know, video segment with Swerve talking about how even though he's down soldiers referring to Parker and Tretch, um, you know, he's got a merger happening. And like I got my hopes up. I was kind of hoping that it was gonna be like with Jay White and you know Juice because I just feel like Swerve would be the perfect fit for the Bullet Club, but that wasn't the case. Then later on in the night, uh, after Darby's match, uh, Swerve came out, greeted him at, on the ramp, shook his hand or attempted to shake his hand, and Brian Cage came out with Prince uh, Nana and jumped Darby, almost fucking killing him uh, with his uh, F10 or whatever the hell he calls it. Um, but I mean, it was a brutal spot and I feel bad for Darby because I guess apparently he got hit by a car earlier on the day. Nice, nice. Um, but I mean, yeah, no, it was pretty awful. But th- this all set up the fucking match for uh, Dynamite uh, tonight. Both these guys have great chemistry in the ring, like I said, um, you know, and they were not scared to lay it in. Um you know, during the match, we had the ongoing Pillars uh, storyline happening. Uh, this time, we had Sammy in the back, you know, looking on. Um, so, but then uh, at one point, uh, the Mogul affiliates did show up. And they did end up interfering to no avail, which I wasn't necessarily a big fan of. Like, I understand right now, like, you're pushing Darby. But, like, if you're just introducing a new faction, like... You want to see their impact right away, especially like if the, it's their debut. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I thought it was weird. And I think it's just kind of like where the storylines were going. You know, we're kind of at a crossroads. You know, Swerve's kind of doing his own thing. Darby's kind of doing his own thing. But right now, obviously, they're pushing Darby more. So, you know, Swerve's storyline has to kind of go on the back burner, even though traditionally, like, if you introduce a new faction, you want to show right away like mm-hmm. that they matter. And this didn't really help their cause at all. Um, but regardless, I mean, the match was fantastic. Um, you know, we had uh, Darby ended up getting the win. Um, he hit the last supper. But before that, it was pretty even Steven. So it was kind of like a situation where he kind of like just squeaked out a win. Uh, but it is a cool ass pinning combination. So but directly after the match was over, MJF came out and confronted Darby Uh this was a good back and forth you know mjf just talked about like their history together uh you know talked about how talented darby was really just putting him over as a performer all the while you know burying milwaukee um and i mean rightfully so milwaukee sucks um (laughs) sorry that's the chicago and me talking i'm joking um at one point alan did ask mjf if he's truly happy and he kind of talked about their history together and how they are wrestling in front of like 50 people like just six years ago Mm -hmm. um and that you know mjf told darby that you know he won't be truly happy until he's like wrestling in front of a national audience um but you know 
they just kind of reviewed like their two separate paths and, you know, how, you know, even when Darby got success and he thought he'd be happy in AEW, he still wasn't and he had to go get therapy. Um, and he found out that his true happiness was like, you know, helping out his family with all of the success um, and that he wasn't willing to like basically sell his soul, you know, t- you know, to you know, get to where Max is, that he's, you know, it, it was very similar to what, like, Jungle, Jungle Boy, Boy said, yeah. yes, um, but it was still a great promo, I will say, um, you know, especially from Darby, who, you know, doesn't do a lot of talking, but then MJF went on and talked about, you know, what his legacy is going to be in the wrestling world compared to Darby's, and, and that he'll be known as, you know, one of the greatest champions of all time, while, like, Darby will be simply known as Sting's bitch, um, <laughs> This brought out Sting, uh, who also brought out, you know, apparently all of his dad jokes this evening. Okay. Um, <laughs> he confronted, uh, you know, MJF toe to toe, got in his face and, you know, he brought up, you know, oh, I keep on hearing all this stuff about like daddy daycare and, you know, I'm not Darby's dad. I'm, you know, his cheerleader. And then he proceeded to start to pull out pom-poms from his pocket and throw them in MJF's face. Um, He didn't do a cheer? No, no cheer or anything. Just random pom-poms. He had two in his front pockets and then he had two inside of his coat. Uh, Then, you know, Sting kind of uh, brought up Cody. Um, you know, he played it off as a slip of the tongue and he said, you know, we're not talking Cody daycare. And it's like, oh, did I say the Cody word? And then he brought up the fact that, you know, MJF was basically riding Cody's, you know, coattails on the beginning of AEW and how he was like tutored and protected by Cody. And, you know, Sting brought up the fact that, you know, Darby is kind of in the same boat with him, but, you know, you know, basically saying it's normal, too, because then Sting brought up the fact that Ric Flair also did the same for him, you know, when, you know, Sting was younger. So um, then he, for some reason, started going through, like, all the different, you know, iterations of, you know, his character through over the years and, you know, talked about, you know, you know, Surfer Sting and and crow sting and wolf pack sting and joker sting and yeah i mean this the this segment was a little long but it was still <laughs> decent um you know i'm probably not doing it justice at all but um sting did get his point across he did mention that showtime's almost over for him kind of hinting at like maybe a retirement announcement and we've been hearing for a while now that this is probably sting's last year I mean, I'll believe it when I see it, Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, all through his TNA run, we kept on hearing the same fucking thing. And I mean, the difference now is that he's obviously, you know, in his mid 60s, but, you know, still, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, But yeah, no, I mean, Darby got up after this exchange and grabbed the mic and, you know, did one of his little emo, you know, lines talking about a plastic world or something. I don't know. Um, But you know, uh, MJF ended up spitting in his face and, you know, jumping out of the ring. And that's how the segment ended. <laughs> Overall, I mean, this was a lot of screen time for Darby, but I, I do feel like it'll do wonders for his character. And he was super over with the crowd. Um, I think he's probably the most over out of all the four pillars. Um, the one thing I will say about the segments 
that, I don't know, I guess it's the one thing I would tweak is one, I didn't like MJF like just standing there while Sting was like dressing him down. I thought that was a little off character for him, um, especially like when he's like throwing pom poms directly in mm-hmm. his face. Um, and then like after fucking MJF spits in Darby's face, like, you know, he jumps out of the ring and Darby does the thing where he goes to the ropes and like bounces off of them. Like he can't like for some reason just go through the ropes and chase after uh-huh. MJF. Like, to me, if someone spits in your face, you're chasing them down and trying to beat their ass. So, like, I hate that. And it, it was the same thing happened a couple weeks ago with FTR and the uh, guns. Oh, it happens every week in it's different just, scenarios. I, I, but you remember, like, the first year AEW, they weren't doing shit like that. I mean, you remember that great segment between Cody and the Inner Circle where, like, something happened between the two, you know, groups like, you know, inner circle, try to pull a fast one. And then Cody's like, this isn't the other place. Like I'm not, I'm not confined to these invisible walls. And he like <laughs> chased Jericho up the arena, uh-huh. like going after him. I was like, yeah, I want I more of that shit. So I don't know that, that always bothers me regardless. I hate that wrestling trope, but overall, regardless, I mean, a good segment, a good segment. And I like that every week we're seeing, progression in this like four pillars storyline like i'm sure next week we'll probably like focused on like jungle boy um you know since i believe last week right we're it was sammy Mm. who got all the mic time oh actually jungle boy got some time too um you know he attacked mjf but then sammy had the match afterwards and then had a whole segment on the mic so i'm sure we'll hear from jungle boy again but i like that we're watching all the pillars collect wins right now uh and i'm sure it's just all leading to like the announcement of you know the four corners like main events where you know we have like the four way for the title at um double or nothing well up next we had powerhouse hobbs defeating silas young in you know silas young's usual once a year match for aw uh for t for the tnt title yeah i mean i was surprised that this was you know such a squash match but at the same time like it was fine it makes sense for you know hobbs to pick up you know an easy win here i, I felt like this was kind of like a a palate cleanser after you know the you know 35 minute you know segment that we had you know prior um it's just like last time we saw Silas Young, I feel like on Dynamite, like he was going like pretty like even Steven with, uh, you know, Hangman. You know, they had like a competitive mm-hmm. match. So to see Silas just get like destroyed was kind of surprising to me. Um, you know, they seem to always use him when they're in Milwaukee. I think that's where he's from. Oh, OK. Well, that um, makes but sense. he is he is a Ring of Honor guy, too. And I I I don't know if he's actually under contract, but I do believe they've been using him on the shows. So I was just a little taken aback by like how quickly, you know, uh, Hobbs disposed of him. But this is all done to set up the return of Wardlow. Earlier on, they showed um, Powerhouse show up to Dynamite in a new car that QT bought him. Um, I believe the storyline is that it was bought with like Wardlow's stolen credit cards, which is just absurd. It's okay. like, what? You go to jail for that kind of stuff. Yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> so but why didn't he cancel any of his calls? Once, once <laughs> you see the car, you know exactly what's about to fucking happen. Ah. And sure enough, after the match, there's a cameraman in the back. You hear, like, you know, commotion. And then we see Wardlow chasing off the valet um, as he takes a fucking pipe to the car. Um, then Wardlow climbed into a forklift that was conveniently sitting there in the middle of the parking lots and, you know, 
just completely flipped the car over um, as Powerhouse looked on. Um, I thought the segment was going to end, but then Wardlow apparently is a real fast runner because <laughs> he showed up, you know, and confronted Hobbs. There was a huge melee, um, but oh, then okay. a bunch of enhancement talent came out and tried to break up the fight. Uh, but Wardlow ended up getting his hands on Aaron Solo, who ended up power bombing through a couple tables off the ramp. Um, so, yes, uh, this feud is back on. I'm not sure why Wardlow needed to be off camera off the show for this long of a period of time because this happened right like he lost the title the night after the pay-per-view right or the week after the pay-per-view so i mean i understand like he got power bombed through a table off the ramp but like i feel like that happens like on a weekly basis on aw and obviously the way they shot it we could tell he had a pretty comfy fall. So I don't know. Like, it just feels like, you know, they, they're doing too much stop and start with Wardlow. And if he's not on the screen every week, he's going to lose momentum. Mm -hmm. And like, this seems to be an ongoing thing, like a trope for all of Wardlow's storylines where, you know, with Joe is the same thing. He ends up, you know, getting attacked by Joe and then he's, you know, nowhere to be seen for like a month. And then he shows up and, you know, I, I believe that's what happened with the last storyline. So I don't know if he's dealing with maybe injuries or something, but it, it just seems bizarre to me that, like, you know, they're doing this, like, stop and start booking with him. And I feel like it's really hurting, like, any steam that he's able to build with the crowd. So hopefully they can get things back on track. And, like, to me, like, if you're really behind Wardlow, you need to feature him every fucking mm. week. You know, if it's not on Dynamite, then then it needs to be on Rampage. Um, so like, I don't know. Do you see Wardlow winning the title at, like in this feud? Because I'm I'm picturing Hobbs coming out winning. I think he's going to end up getting the title back. Mm, I do. Okay. So I do. Um, I just don't know if they're going to be able to stretch it to double or nothing because that's the end of May. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if this is going to be a situation where they have a rematch and then, you know, it's a screw job finish. So then, you know, they set up the actual match, you know, at, at the pay-per-view and that's when Wardlow recaptures the title. I just fear it's going to be too late for him, though, because um, I just I just feel like, you know, they're just just derailing all of his momentum, mm. you know, with all these storylines. So, um how many times can we see him get jumped and like put on the shelf for weeks on end? Like he's supposed to be this uh, unstoppable force of nature, you know, but all this guy does is, you know, spend his time on, you know, the injury list. So it's not helping like the mystique of Wardlow, if you will. Um, So I don't know. I'm not a fan of the way that they're really booking him right now. No, it's been weird since his title reign. I mean, even when he had the title, he was yes. still not on television. So I'm- not enough, not nearly enough, especially when you've got the the TNT title. And that's a title that was kind of like the workman's title where mm. it was being defended on a weekly basis. And then Wardlow gets it and it's barely on the fucking show. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Like I said, in AEW, they never disclose injuries. Um, and I feel like it does hurt them in storylines like this. Um you know, because I feel like, it, you know, when you don't know a wrestler's injured, then you are just assuming that they're sitting back and catering. 
And for some reason, like, AEW is just, you know, kind of putting their storyline on the back burner. So then you're basically getting yourself in a situation where you have a bunch of disgruntled fans, you know, saying, hey, what about this guy? What's going on here? Like, it just feels like a lack of, like, coherent, like, consistent booking. Um, And if that's not the case, and if it is, like, due to injury, because another person that comes to mind is, like, Sheeta right now. Like, Sheeta, I believe, is dealing with an injury. But, like, we had a storyline that was very much with Sheeta, you know, involved in it, like, at kind of the center. And then she just disappeared from TV, and there's no mention of her whatsoever. And it's kind of like, what the fuck happened to Sheeta? <laughs> it just feels like, you know, creative, like, malpractice. Because, like, all it takes is having the announcers mention briefly that a competitor's out with injuries. Um, It doesn't make them look weak. They, we know they wrestle, you know, multiple times a week. So yeah, it, it happens. <laughs> yes. So, or, like, build a storyline around it. Mm-hmm. Like, have someone take these guys out. Um, But... Like, when you don't mention it, then it looks like you're just horrible at your fucking job, and this promotion doesn't know what the fuck it's doing. So, I mean, I've talked about this before at nauseum, so I, I won't keep on ranting, but it just drives me nuts. Like, <laughs> it really does. Um, but, yeah. So, I, I'm not a fan of this storyline. Um, I want Hobbs to have a longer title run, but I just don't know if that's in the cards. Like, I feel like there's still behind Wardlow, mm-hmm. especially how they booked this kind of angle tonight. Um, you know, I feel like he'll have that belt sooner than later again. Uh, after that, we had a video package from the Bullet Club. Uh, that's Switchblade, Jay White, and Juice Robinson here in AEW. Yeah, I mean, they just talked a bunch of trash um, about Ricky Starks. And uh, during this whole package, they kind of showed like the history of the Bullet Club and actually like showed a lot of former members like Cody and AJ um, and of course the elite. But then Jay White basically said that like this is the best version of the Bullet Club, um, that they're Bullet Club gold now oh so they're using the bullet club name still but now gold is at the end of it (laughs) so they must have some kind of deal with new japan i'm guessing uh where they got the okay to use the copyright um because we know that AEW doesn't have the rights to it we know the the bucks and kenny don't have the rights to it i mean once they left new japan or once they once they left the faction they stopped using the logo the bullet Mm -hmm. club logo um but yeah, so I don't know if we're going to end up seeing like, you know, more members join this group. Uh, I would think so, because I mean, it, it doesn't seem like this is going to be a tag team. But storyline wise, I'm assuming that we're going to get a tag match between like Bullet Club Gold and like, you know, Ricky Starks and maybe like Action Andretti. Um, I could see even Action turning on Ricky, you know, and joining. Yeah, that that dude's just not a natural baby face. <laughs> He something didn't about him JAS, just but something something <laughs> about him just screams like heel to me. Uh-huh. So uh, I could totally see him joining up. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I'm guessing the pay per view is going to end up being Jay White versus Ricky Starks. It just it's unfortunate because I feel like Ricky's going to have to lose this match, right? I mean, this is a big free agent signing. Uh-huh. I mean, this is Jay fucking White. This guy, you know, carried the IWGP like title multiple times yeah i guess i wasn't thinking that far ahead but yeah he would probably have to win yeah right 
Like, I'm sure we'll have Ricky beat Juice. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I'm guessing Jay is going to go over. And then I'm, I'm assuming, and, you know, I might be assuming a little too much, but I'm guessing the next, you know, few, the natural progression at least should be to Adam Cole. Since, you know, it, it was in a match with Jay White that Adam Cole, you know, got his concussion that put him on the shelf for so long. So it would just make sense storyline-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. Like, I'm guessing that's where we're headed after, you know, uh, Double or Nothing. And hopefully we get Juice Robinson dripped out in gold, you know, coming sure. out to the ring every time. You know they're going to, like, emphasize the gold going forward. I Well, yeah. No, I'm sure we're going to have, like, a gold Bullet Club logo uh-huh. shirt and everything like that. Although, didn't we kind of – we had that, right, with the Golden Elite. I guess, Wasn't the yeah. same the same type of logo? Uh-huh. I know the Buck shirt was like that, right? It was gold, it was gold and black, yeah. Yeah, and it was the Bullet Club logo, at least the, you know, Young Buck version of it. So we'll, well see. Well, they could just, you know, make that comment later, you know, but. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, because you got to figure they're also on a collision course with the Elite eventually, mm-hmm. too. So, I mean, there's a lot of great possibilities of the cards, you know, when it comes to having Jay White now underneath the AEW umbrella. So, you know, and I'm excited for it. Uh, up next, we had Orange Cassidy defeating Buddy Matthews to retain his AEW International title yeah i mean the story of this match totally centered around orange's injured hand um i believe the injury took place last week um it was a great match both these guys are so fucking fast and like i mean we know how quick orange is but like i think sometimes in all the like chaos of like you know the the trios matches like buddy kind of gets lost in the shuffle um, and you just forget like how talented he is and just how quick he is in the ring, especially for his size, because he's not a small dude. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything he does is so crisp. So these guys were really gelling well together um, and told a great story. You know, I, I did like the whole hand injury thing. Um, I thought maybe they got a little too cute with it, like orange hit a couple too many like orange punches. Um, more than what I would have done, uh, storyline wise, because after a certain point, it was like, okay, dude, your hand would just be dust at this point. Um, but I don't know. I would have just held off on that until like the finish of the match. Um, but I, I mean, they had me on the edge of my seat the entire time. I will say, like, I really thought Buddy could walk away with the title because right now, one of the big like through lines with Orange is the fact that he's a fighting champion and that Mm -hmm. he's putting that belt on the line every week. Um, And we're seeing like the wear and tear happen to him, like, you know, every time he's on camera. So it's only a matter of time before, you know, the wear and tear is going to catch up with him. Uh, and I really thought maybe it was going to be tonight. Um, so, I mean, kudos to them for, you know, having me believe that, you know, we could see the House of Black walk away with another title. Um, I will also like to give credit to Julia Hart. I feel like she's great as a manager on the outside of the ring and like her facial expressions really add a lot. Um, she's really owned this character. Um, so, and I know like they been giving her more ring time also so hopefully she can kind of put all the pieces together um because i feel like she's basically doing what we wanted with the alexa bliss character when she was kind of underneath the fiend's trance um it's very similar um obviously she's more of a willing participant it feels like 
and it's a lot less like cheesy, but um, I don't know. Like I'm digging it. Like it's subtle, but it's effective. I do agree though that Buddy Matthews is a great talent. I just for some reason every time I see them with the House of Black, and I don't feel like he believes in what he's doing. Like I feel like he doesn't want to be a part of the gimmick. I don't see him really getting into it as much as the yeah, other. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like he's kind of just playing the part. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's like part of his ongoing storyline too, because if you think about it, like even the way he like joined the group, he was kind of like just a minion, like right away when he showed up in the ring, like Malachi kind of started abusing him. Um, they quickly got away from that. And now he just seems to be like, you know, a stable part of the group, like they, you know, an equal, you know, if you will. Um, but if you think about it, like he kind of played that minion role in the WWE also, and he did have an ongoing feud with Malachi Black um, there um, at the time. So um, I could see him like getting fed up and, you know, being the first person to kind of part ways with the group mm. and like feuding with Malachi eventually, um, you know, because he yeah, yeah, he's the only dude without like a thousand tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It took him a while to figure out his like goth outfit too and everything and for them to find him a mask. So it does feel like he's kind of like cosplaying, if you will. Uh, but yeah, no, I could see that happening down the line. But I did start to believe that, you know, he could possibly walk away with the title. So you got to give a lot of credit to, you know, both wrestlers, you know, because I told a great story in the, the ring. Um you know, and I could, you know, if he did get the title, I, I thought maybe it'd just be like a week or two before Orange got it back. Um, but that, like with this belt, I feel like that's fine. Like you can do that. You can do mm -hmm. quick title, you know, changes, you know, back and forth like that. It, and it would be okay. Like you could play hot potato with a belt like this, uh, you know, and I think it would, it would make it almost feel fresh, honestly. Um, you know, and you know, I mean, I guess my one critique of this match was it was another quick, like flash pin. Um, but it just works so well with the story that they're telling that, you know, at the end of the day, I guess I give it a pass. Um, but it was very similar to what we had um, in the uh, opening match with Orange Cassidy and um, Swerve. Well, that's something that they're hopefully going to solve someday. We're, we're not going to see similar finishes on the same show, but that does happen a lot. Yeah. You know, that redundancy on uh, AEW TV. So, uh, but yeah, I would love to see. Um, Orange Cassidy just stalking whoever gets the title after this because he just thinks it's his. You know, he just keeps walking <laughs> up on people like this. Hey, With title. an empty backpack, uh -huh. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, after this, we had a vignette with Christian Cage and Luchasaurus saying things have changed. Yes, looking all spooky and red light. Very Kane-esque. We'll see. We'll see exactly what this uh -huh. is. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping this is like Luchasaurus like going through a total like gimmick change but that doesn't seem to be the case he's definitely rocking a new costume the mask is red um i wouldn't mind a name change you know it's hard to take him serious when he's going underneath the moniker luchasaurus uh -huh. but it is what it is i guess that's what everyone's going to call him regardless um it'll be interesting to see if christian's going to be playing more of a manager role if he's going to be like luchasaurus's paul bearer if you will that would be um, fun to watch him you know uh -huh. lifting an urn and shit oh yes <laughs> no I, I don't want that <laughs> but i i do want to see luchasaurus go on a rampage you know like you know no pun intended like just destroy people for a couple months at least um, before it gets into a serious feud like you got to make me believe he's this monster character because 
it eventually got there with the storyline that they're telling, you know, that they're going with last, you know, program for Luchasaurus with Jungle Boy. Hmm. But it took a while to get there. Like, I still wasn't believing him, like, you yeah. know, after the first month or so. Um, it just felt like he was going through the motions. So um, hopefully they can, like, tap into that vicious side of the character. Uh, after this, we had a backstage moment with Renee and the best friends alongside Orange Cassidy. Yeah, this was all done just to set up a match on Rampage between the best friends and uh, Aussie Open, who uh, just recently won the IWGP uh, tag titles. Oh, okay. Um, I was kind of taken aback by this because it feels like Forbidden Doors right around the corner. So, like, let's not do the interbrand, you know, matches so much on TV. Like, let, let's, you know, save that for the pay-per-view to make it feel special. But I guess... At the same time, you do want to feature that New Japan talent a little bit mm. on your show. So, you know, people are excited for it. Um, I'm guessing, obviously, that Aussie Open's going to, you know, get the win over the best friends. Uh, and, I mean, we could look up the spoilers, but we won't since, you know, that's already taken place. I, I believe Rampage was recorded after Dynamite this week. Um, I just feel bad for the best friends because all they do is lose. <laughs> I really hope that they at least get like a trio's title run in the near future. Cause I mean, they deserve, they've been like with AEW since day one and they've one. like, they haven't won shit. Like, <laughs> like Jack shit. I mean, orange obviously has had, you know, a title run, but you know, poor fucking, you know, Chuck and Trent, they can't win, you know, anything. <laughs> So I don't know. It just feels like the trios belts were made for, you know, a faction like best friends. So I'm hoping that they at least get a moment in the sunshine with mm. them. So, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. After that, Ethan Page made his way to the ring. So, yeah, I mean, Page was in the middle of the ring, basically giving us a rundown of, you know, the whole firm, hearty storyline. Um, you know, it was a lot of exposition, basically kind of like taking us through the contract situation and everything, which I'm still completely confused by. But whatever. Like, I don't know if they still have the contracts of Hardy and uh, Private Party or if they lost them at some point. A lot of this angle first started off on um, on Dark. Um, it's been entertaining, though. Like, I've enjoyed what I've seen of it. Um, you know, and, uh, I mean, uh, a lot of this angle took place on like dark and rampage. Uh, so it's a little, I don't know, murky for me. Uh, but I will say like, I've been entertained by it for the most part. Uh, but yeah, uh, Hardy and Isaiah came out, uh, on the ramp to confront, uh, Ethan Page because, Apparently, like the past couple weeks, all the baby faces in AEW are idiots. Um, because of course, Ethan Page said, I'm not alone. Here comes the rest of the fucking firm. Uh -huh. Start beat the shit out of Hardy and um, Isaiah. And then, um, Hook came out to make the save. Hook was a house of fire at first, but then he ran to Big Bill, couldn't lift him. Um, you know, got beat down and just overcome by the numbers. And then all of a sudden we hear the familiar chords of the Hardy Boys song and a gyrating Jeff Hardy showing off his newest arts and crafts project made his celebrated return. Uh, the crowd did explode, um, you know, when they heard, you know, the Hardy Boy music. 
Uh, you know, he cleaned house, hugged everyone in the ring. Even Hook, like, gave Hardy a hug. So that seemed almost out of character for Hook. Um, but a big moment still. Uh, and, you know, they all celebrated in the ring. I will say it was good to see Jeff back. I just hope that he's healthy. And I hope AEW is doing everything in their power to make sure that he has everything he needs to stay healthy. Not that it's, you know, all in their court, but, you know, because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, up to Jeff. But I just hope AEW has, like, ultimatums, you know, for him that he needs to, like, you know, follow. Like, you know, like, you need to do X, Y, and Z to continue to work here. Um you know, and that they just take a hard line with it because, mm. you know, like it's got to be a situation where, you know, it's zero tolerance now at this point. I mean, it's a horrible situation, but like if he continues to put other people's lives at risk, I mean, they need to take, you know, action. Um, but hopefully that's not the case. And, you know, he's like turned a new leaf. Yeah, I just hope that, you know, he's able to reclaim his legacy here. Really, you know, make the focus be his career in the ring rather than everything that's happened outside of it, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And the fans still love him, you know, they, mm-hmm. and they they want to be behind him 100%. So, I mean, that was evident tonight with the reaction he got in the ring. So. All right, up next we had a video package from Kenny Omega about the Blackpool Combat Club. Yeah, this was a very serious and somber Kenny Omega. Uh, he was, you know, supposedly doing this from his home. Uh, he thanked, you know, all the doctors, you know, who helped out him and the Bucks and uh, Don Callis over the past couple weeks. Uh, and then he addressed the BCC, um, you know, saying that basically that, you know, he gets it. This is wrestling, you know you know, faction warfare, blah, blah, blah. But like once they put their hands on Don Callis, who, while, you know, a lot of people don't like him, he's still part of Kenny's family and he takes that seriously. And he ended it saying that, you know, this isn't blood for blood anymore. This is something far worse. Um, Whatever that means. You know? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh my God, is he going to take out Renee? Like what? (laughs) Bree, watch your kids. I mean, like, what's uh, happening? Right. <laughs> uh, they did uh, show the gash on Don Callis's head, and I literally screamed out loud. <laughs> this was fucking horrendous. Like, this was probably the most grotesque thing I've ever seen on a wrestling show before. Nice. So, yeah. Definitely check it out. Um, it's not for the squeamish, though. It's not for the squeamish. I mean, it looked like something like you'd get from like like behind the scene footage of a horror film or something like that, and like the the Blu-ray extras where they're visiting like the you know special effects department. Uh-huh. Like it was just like insane. They just opened up this giant hole in Cal's head, like while he was just sitting there. It was. God damn. And that was all an accident, right? That that yes. whole moment. Yeah. Yes, that was Yes, I would hope so. <laughs> they weren't planning on killing Don. This was yeah, this was definitely like a hard way. Uh-huh. <laughs> you couldn't do this to yourself with a fucking razor blade. I guess he hit some equipment when he took the bump. Um and it like cause he wasn't supposed to blade or anything like that. Like he was just supposed to like, you know, take the fall and you know, have uh Moxley step on his back and that was it. 
but I guess he hit some kind of equipment and totally like massacred himself. So um, even yeah. when Moxley's not trying to cause blood, yes, he, he there, causes blood. there will be blood <laughs> no matter what. Um, speaking of Moxley, him and Claudio went up against Brandon Cutler and Michael Nakazawa. Yeah, Cutler and Nakazawa, I guess, cut some kind of promo saying that they were going to stand up for their fallen friends. Uh, we knew that murder was going to ensue, and uh-huh. it did. Uh, the BCC jumped them before the match even started. Both Nakazawa and Cutler were busted wide open. The ref, for some reason, allowed the match to start. Um which was just a continuation of the slaughter that we had beforehand. Although I will say like they did give Nakazawa a little here. Um, But at the end of the day, it just ended up being, you know, just the total annihilation of the rest of the elite, Um, you know, or the elite's friends, I guess. Now, afterwards, while the BCC were celebrating Kenny Omega's music hits, uh, he shows up and walks halfway down the ramp and just kind of stops. Moxley gets out of the ring to confront him. And then from behind, we see the Young Bucks roll in and take out Wheeler and Claudio uh, with super kicks, of course. Matt is wearing something on his arm, um, you know, because we do know that he did have a serious, like, mm-hmm torn bicep but i guess he opted not to get surgery done so he should be back soon and obviously he was cleared for some kind of physicality because otherwise he wouldn't be in the ring super kicking people uh or maybe he would i don't know um but (laughs) using those evp powers for the wrong reasons this was a cool return i kind of expected it like i felt like it was kind of predictable like once this match was announced i guess what i wasn't expecting was for the elite like just to totally use Nakazawa and Cutler as bait and just let them get murdered in the ring before they come out and (laughs) attack, you know, the BCC because they beat the hell out of both of those guys. And it wasn't like until like the match was over and they started to leave the ring that the elite chose to show up and, you know, actually attack them. Like I thought it was going to be something that would happen like mid match or something like that. Mm. Cause this way, I mean, it almost makes them look like heels. Like they just like, you know, and I know that's part of the storyline that like Nakazawa and Cutler are just kind of like their whipping boys, but I don't know. You know, they, they were getting killed in the middle of the ring. Uh, I'm sure they'll say something on being the elite. Oh, absolutely. Like, like you could, you come were out here the sooner? whole time. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> But it was still a cool segment. Um, it did end with uh, Kenny pulling out a screwdriver and trying to stab Moxley in the head with it. Um, he actually left the uh, screwdriver in the turnbuckle um, as Moxley got away. Uh, it kind of felt like, you know, symbolism, like he was, you know, trying to get vengeance for Hangman. I'm sure that's what it was meant to be. Um Although Kenny didn't make any kind of mention of Hangman during his, um, you know, his little uh, video package uh, before the match. So, um, but obviously that's, you know, where we're headed with some kind of like reconciliation, you know, between, you know, the two, I'm assuming at least. Um, Although they do have another like month and a half to go. So (laughs) it might take us a couple (laughs) weeks to get there. Per usual. Um, also, Brian wasn't there at all tonight, uh, and they, I don't think they mentioned it at all. So, I mean, maybe he just had the week off, but I did feel like that was a little odd. Yeah, usually they do say something like, oh, Brian wasn't booked here for tonight yeah, or some shit I, like that. Maybe I missed it. I might have missed it. So, 
So what do you think? Like double or nothing, we get like blood or guts, or maybe even like uh, the anarchy in the arena match that they did last year. So they usually save blood and guts for a TV special, right? Yeah, the first two were on Dynamite. I mean, I feel like this storyline calls for blood and guts, but maybe they do that, you know, in in between now and then, and then they can do an anarchy at the arena during the pay-per-view. Yeah, and I believe that was kind of the progression uh, with the feud between Eddie Kingston and uh, the BCC and yeah. uh, JAS was they did anarchy in the arena and then they did blood and guts. So that would make sense. I don't know. I mean, regardless, I'm I'm really digging this storyline. Uh, I think it's my probably it's probably my favorite thing going right now on AEW, uh, and I'm excited to see where it goes next. Uh, it feels like they still have a lot of story to tell, and you know they've got plenty of time to do it. So <laughs> I guess we got to strap in and get ready. Well, following this, we had Swerve backstage uh, talking about you know the future of the embassy or mogul embassy now. I guess. Sure, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, Swerve addressed uh, Darby Allen's win and said that, you know, Darby's success is a testament to everything that, you know, Swerve has taught him. Um, once again, you know, making reference to the history between uh, Darby and Swerve and, uh, you know, Defy, their home promotion. Uh, and we know that Swerve actually is uh, going to have Nick Wayne's first match, who also is um, from Defy, uh, oh, okay. when he makes his debut on AEW TV in July. Uh, Swerve actually just lost the uh, Defy title to Nick Wayne. So, um, and I guess afterwards, he challenged Nick Wayne to the match on Dynamite, uh, you know, right after he turns 18. So that will be Wayne's big debut. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm guessing after, you know, everything with him and Keith Lee are done, you know, is done with, you know, that's probably, you know, his next feud, you know, Swerve and Darby and Nick Wayne. But yeah, after that, uh, he mentioned that, you know, the embassy isn't done growing. It's getting bigger and bigger every day. Um, and you know, they're, they're not leaving tonight empty handed, um, you know, and that, you know, he brought up like old past scores that he needs to settle, um, which, you know, we saw him do later on in the night. But before that, we had our obligatory women's tag match for the ongoing never ending outcast feud. Um, yeah, I feel like we've seen some version of this match like every week for the last two months. Uh, this week it was Tony Storm and Ruby Soho defeating Rio and Sky Blue. Um, yeah, I'm not even gonna go over the match because you already know what happened <laughs> because you've seen it multiple times at this point. But yes, uh, afterwards, big surprise, they pulled up the spray paint, they uh sprayed an L on Rio. Uh, this brought out Jamie Hayter who got beat down, and then that brought out Britt Baker. Um, who was able to clear the ring as the uh, outcasts, you know, sulked their way out, as the outcasts scurried to the back. I don't know what to say, man. Like, this this whole storyline and angle is just dragging ass. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Like, you got to give us some progression here. Like, mm. it's the same fucking thing week after week. And it felt like that a month before Revolution. I mean, literally, the only progression, the only change to the story 
is Ruby joining the outcasts. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we're just seeing different combinations of like this set of eight women. Um, and it's just it's not going anywhere. They just need to add something else to the mix. Do you think they just see this as, hey, we're giving everyone, you know, time here each episode? I fucking hope not, because you have an entire women's locker room Mm -hmm. who aren't being featured on the show. Because then it's just the same fucking like four women, you know, that are getting featured every week while the rest of the, you know, women's division just rots away. I mean, yeah, we get the occasional match on Rampage, but, you know, otherwise they're just on Dark. Um, you know, I, I'm assuming that they have some story in mind, you know, for the, for these women, but it feels like they're treading water until they get to the pay-per-view. You know, I'm guessing we're going to see like a blood and guts type match or, Mm -hmm. you know, some kind of like stadium stampede type deal, like some kind of gang warfare at the next big show. But I don't know, man, it's just like, you need to give us some progression every week to you know keep this story compelling and interesting because otherwise i don't know man it's just redundant i mean like at least when you get the beatdowns from like the bcc it's happening in random places they're doing something different each time but this has been the same match well and and like they've put all of them on the shelf you Mm -hmm. know and you have the whole adam page you know drama happening at the same time like it's it's just it, there's progression happening every week. Yeah, <laughs> something different happened. You have you know Brian Danielson joining the group, and we're seeing like murders take place in the ring, not just people getting fucking you know graffitied. Would you love it if it's like a spray paint match of some sort? Oh god, <laughs> to finish off like a sp- spray can on a pole match or something uh-huh. horrible like that. Just... <laughs> Yeah, they need to do something to just, I don't know, like I said, add something to the mix, liven it up. Um, I need to hear a promo and tell me the motivation for why Mm. this is all happening again. You know, like, I mean, the outcasts are outnumbered at this point. Like, there's no reason why they should be getting the upper hand on, you know, the the, uh, originals, the AEW originals. It's just such a waste because I was really excited when this story started but it just feels like they don't really or they never really had any real vision for where any of this was like headed. I'm guessing like after we get some kind of gimmick match, you know, between the two, you know, different factions that we end up getting like a, you know, one on one match for the belts, maybe at like, you know, Wembley uh, between like Soraya and, you know, Jamie Hayter, um, especially since they're going to be in both, you know, wrestlers home country. Um but that's in July. You know, you've got <laughs> you've got a lot of time to fill in between. So let's start actually filling it, you know, not with the same fucking, you know, match week in and week out. Because we still haven't even had a real like interaction between like Rio and like Britt Baker. Like there's been nothing spoken between, like, mm-hmm. you know, Sky Blue and Rio and, you know hater and brits and there's definitely friction there between the two um but like you know let's have them at least like you know get on the same page i almost wouldn't mind them doing like a jas angle where they have the outcast being like well you know this is what we believe is the perfect ideal version 
of like what a you know female superstar in this company should be and they like you know take someone who is an AEW original and make them into their mold. here's my question christian is that their motivation like they feel like like i mean is it a case of them feeling like they're better than the AEW locker room so then like that's why they're attacking all of them I mean, their early promos were all about, you know, being disrespected and unliked by the, the AEW originals and I guess hated by the fans. But I, I mean, they haven't really gone anywhere with it. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. Anything would be better than this. So uh-huh. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, like I could see them finding like kinship with like Thunder Rosa. If you want to throw yeah. her in the mix, you know, since she's always kind of seen herself as an outsider and we know of all the drama that's taking place behind the scenes, you know, between her and the rest of the women's locker room. And I mean, she did come into the company as an outsider. She was part of the NWA um, before she for uh, over a year before she officially signed mm-hmm. with AEW. So, I mean. You could see, I could see something like that happening, I guess. Like, maybe at first she aligns herself with the originals, but then she, you know, stabs them in the back and says, fuck you guys, you never accepted me. That would make sense. But, I mean, they definitely need new blood. Because, like I said, at this point, they're outnumbered. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> storyline-wise, it just makes sense that they're recruiting. I mean, maybe they bring someone in from the outside. Maybe they bring in Trinity. She was backstage at uh, ROH um, at their last pay-per-view. So uh, she, you know, definitely is an outsider, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so call her in for backup. Um, Athena is, you know, part of the company. She's over on ROH and, and she has a chip on her shoulder. She's, you know, a, a fantastic heel. Um, I would love to see her, you know, part of the group. Mm-hmm. So there's but a I don't lot. Know why they're not pulling the trigger? There's a lot of different directions they can go in to like freshen this storyline up. Uh, it's just a matter of them actually giving a shit and doing it. And right now, the way they're you know booking this program, it just feels like they don't give a shit. Like it's a total afterthought. I don't get it. All right, to move on, uh, we have Chris Jericho defeating Keith Lee in our main event. Yeah, I mean, all in all, I thought this was a good match. Um, the crowd. At this point, I don't know if they were just tired, but now the crowd, I don't know if they were just exhausted at this point. Like, they were up for, like, the the intros and everything. But, like, once the match started, I don't know. They were just kind of sitting on their hands. Um, They eventually got into it at the end, but it took a bit, you know, for, you know, Jericho and Keith Lee to, like, really win them over. Um, I'm digging Keith Lee's beard. I like the gray look, obviously. Um... (laughs) You know, it just makes him look super distinguished. He comes out with this, like, huge fucking robe and everything. So he looks like just a fucking mage out there, um, which is kind of funny considering that, you know, Jericho is supposed to be a wizard. Um, mm. I don't know. Like, it was a good match, you know. Um, I think it just kind of felt weird to me because the match ended with uh, Swerve coming out, which he basically told you he was going to do um in his interview backstage mm-hmm. um and just clobbering uh you know lee with i don't know if it was the toolbox that kenny had earlier on but it was some heavy object and then of course jericho took advantage and you know got the victory um afterwards we had adam cole come out uh to i guess console keith lee but 
also to play mind games with Jericho and, you know, basically mirror what Jericho did to him after, you know, his first match back, you know, beating uh, Garcia, um, you know, in the main event of Dynamite. So he did the whole, like, look over his shoulder thing. And, you know, mm. he did the whole, like, look over the shoulder thing, um, which just infuriated Jericho. And that's how the show ended. So, of course, I think it's safe to assume that we're going to see Adam Cole and Jericho at Double or Nothing and yeah. probably Keith Lee and Swerve um, finally at Double or Nothing. I mean, that feud's been in the making for, I feel like, almost a year now. Like, because you remember, like, they were kind of like a tag team in turmoil before they won the belts. And then, mm-hmm. like, they lost the belts. I mean, that was last year. <laughs> that is crazy to think. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, once again, you never know, like, you know, with AEW's booking style, if it's just a case of them getting lost in the shuffle or if there was some kind of injury that took place that we didn't know about. Um, so <laughs> because they even had like they had Keith Lee return last month. Yes. And he tagged with uh, Gold Dust and beat was Keith weird. Lee and one of his, uh, you know, henchmen. Mm-hmm. And then like they were just, you know, off the show for almost a month afterwards. I think they did some stuff on Rampage, but I, I don't know. It's just weird. A lot of stopping and starting. So um, I don't know. And then like Jericho, like didn't it feel like Jericho was about to feud with uh, the House of Black? Like JS, like oh, they. Oh yeah, yeah. That was that was the thing that was happening. <laughs> and that just kind of went nowhere. So and then we've got part of JS uh, feuding with the acclaimed, because you've got uh, Daddy Magic and Cool Hand Luke uh-huh. like trying to recruit the acclaimed, and then on Rampage they jumped them. So I, t- <laughs> I don't know what's happening right now. I mean, I guess they've got plenty of TV time to fill since you mm-hmm. know Double or Nothing is a month and a half away. So. So I don't mind them, like, taking a few detours before they get to, like, their destination. Um, And it might help make things, you know, fresh and interesting still. Because I I feel like a lot of the issues sometimes AEW has with some of their feuds is, like, there's so much time in between pay-per-views. So, like, by the time you actually get to, like, you know, the show, it feels like, you know, the two, you know, parties have been feuding for a year. So maybe like some of this, like, I don't know, disarray storyline wise is to kind of like alleviate some of the repetitiveness um, when it comes to the storylines, you know, when you've got a show to do week in and week out. Um yeah, when you've got a weaving narrative, it might as well. I mean, you have all these wrestlers that you can use and you can that would probably make this more enjoyable to get to each pay-per-view rather than like seeing the same two people go after each other yes. for four months. Because it becomes very like formulaic where you're mm-hmm. getting, you know, backstage promo, backstage promo, video package, video package, mm-hmm. in-ring interview, in-ring interview, you know, tag match, tag match. Like, yeah, because it, it becomes formulaic. Like, it seems like the wrestler's only focus becomes, like, their opponent for the pay-per-view. And then we get a situation where, you know, you know we're getting, you know, your standard backstage, you know, segment. And then we're getting your in-ring promo. And then we're getting some kind of tag match, you know, just kind of, like, treading water and trying to stretch things out till we actually mm. get to the next pay-per-view. Um yeah, so I, I'm for this. I'm 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 totally okay with this, and you know I'm sure Jericho 
probably put this in place with all the complaints he's been getting with like you know how long-winded his storylines have been recently so um you know i will give him credit because the ricky starks thing did you know end at last pay-per-view and we were terrified you know it was gonna go six months or something like that so um hopefully you know he doesn't like suck adam cole into this like (laughs) js black hole and you know this is kind of a one and done type deal too so um I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. But overall, Dynamite was an okay show that progressed some of the storylines. Um, but you could definitely tell that the pay-per-view is a month and a half away. You know? Um, so it is what it is. Um, and that, I feel like that's always, you know, you're always going to get shows like this um, when you have, you know, a four pay-per-view, you know, yearly structure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, the nature of the beast, I guess. But at the same time, that's the challenge. I mean, you got to find new ways to continue to hold people for that long. Otherwise, you'll never get anywhere else in the ratings. Or you could add a couple more (laughs) pay-per-views. I guess. Because, Christian, they'll they'll buy them. We'll buy them. Uh So, I mean, (laughs) this isn't the territory days. You know, Uh like when you have this much TV time weekly to fill, like, I don't know, man. Like, I'm all for long-form storytelling, don't get me wrong, but it can't be for every storyline. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Like, I feel like like we're four years in, we can add a couple pay-per-views. Like, it can go to a bi-monthly situation, and AEW would be fine. I feel like that would, like, really solve a lot of their problems. Yeah, if there were six instead of four. Yeah. Yes. You wouldn't have episodes of Dynamite like this where they're kind of like stuck in between where they want to progress storylines but not progress them too much because they know they still have, you know, six weeks to go <laughs> before the pay-per-view. So, um, and, and, and to think, like, we're probably getting a third AW show in the near future mm-hmm. you know we've got that saturday show on the horizon um you know supposedly so that's even more tv time to fill um i don't know man i i feel like they definitely you know need an extra couple of pay-per-views um or maybe like bigger tv specials that aren't just an hour long like you know battle of the belts um which I it feels like at this point they just regret even like you know signing up for because mm-hmm. now they're just kind of like pinning it to uh, the end of Rampage. <laughs> it just feels like such an afterthought. Like none of the I don't even know the last time a title actually changed hands on one of those shows, and none of the matches feel like truly competitive. They're just kind of like thrown together. Whereas if you have like a Saturday Night Main Event type deal, or even like the original like Clash of the Champions. You know, from back in the day, which was a TV special um, where like serious like feuds, you know, happened and we saw like, you know, big matches, um, you know, in between pay-per-views like that would totally be fine. I feel like that would, you know, really solve a lot of, you know, the issues that we've been having with, you know, AEW's bookings, you know, for these like, you know, middle of like the pay-per-view cycle shows. Also, before we go, there's lots of rumors swirling around CM Punk. Apparently there was a story out this week by uh, Fightful. Apparently there was a story uh, that came out today from Fightful saying that Punk is willing to come back to AEW, that he misses wrestling. 
uh, and that he's willing to basically work with anyone. This, of course, has a lot of people talking, and it coincided with an announcement tonight that AEW will be returning to Chicago in the middle of June. So, of mm. course, now a lot of people are speculating that that might actually be Punk's return date. You know, some of that speculation is partially due to the fact that I, I believe that was the only Dynamite that didn't have an announcement for that month. So um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I do hope that he comes back at this point and they can work things out because, you know, I I know he's not the easiest person in the world to work with, but I feel like, you know, what he brings to the table outweighs any kind of like toxic behavior that, you know, he possibly brings to the locker room. Because I mean, I mean, the dude has his own locker room, so just don't, you know, go into it. <laughs> leave him the fuck alone, and you know, hopefully he'll leave you the fuck alone. Uh, so I do hope he makes his return. I hope they're able to work things out. Um, I hope he's at least apologetic um, and realizes, you know, the black eye, you know, he gave the company, um, you know, optics wise. Because um, I feel like his biggest offense wasn't even you know, the brawl in the locker room between him and the elite. I think it's, you know, him being, you know, a disgruntled employee and basically running down AEW while mm. Tony Khan sat next to him. So I, I would hope at this point he could see, you know, why that was wrong. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, they're all grown men. And I feel like they could put this in the past and, you know, hopefully move on and, and make money by delivering the best version of AEW, um, you know, we could potentially get, um, just because there's, there's so many different great directions they could head into storyline wise. You know, you could have punk, you know, getting revenge against MJF. You could have obviously, you know, punk going against the elite. Um, just, I mean, I feel like there's so much meat on the bone. It would just be such a shame for it to all end. CM Punk delivering his gripe bomb while, you know, chowing down fucking muffins in the middle of a press conference. Um, just, just a fucking waste. I don't remember what ice cream bar company he brought to his, like, debut, but I, I've been looking for it. Oh, <laughs> I, I, like it was really good ice cream bar. I mean, it's it's a simple do you, you know, flavor. But do you remember like just how like glorious that time period was and you oh, know, yeah. how happy everyone was? <laughs> Jesus Christ. It feels like just uh, like a decade ago uh -huh. at this point. Um, I mean, was he even with the company for a year when, you know, the brawl out happened? Just about a year, right? Yeah, just about. God damn. Uh, what man. a mess. <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping that they don't go against the grain when he comes back and he plays heel finally. Like he's, you know, he's kind of the big bad at first. I mean, he can he can go back to face at some point, but he's got to yes. start off heel. I mean, yes, if that's not the direction they go in, then he needs to stand in the middle of the ring and apologize. Uh-huh. You know, um, and hopefully, you know, get the fans back behind him. But I can't imagine that happening. Oh, my God. Have one of the wrestlers just be like, you need to apologize. Well, just apologize <laughs> at least to AEW. Like, I don't expect uh, him to apologize to the elite. But, I mean, just to the company as a whole. Mm -hmm. 
like I do feel like that could actually like win the fans back as long as you know he's genuine but at the same time I feel like he should just come back as a heel because mm-hmm. he'd be a monster fucking heel at this point just take everything that you know he had pent up inside and use it you know <laughs> And it'd be believable because we know, you know, it's it's all true. It actually uh-huh. happened. <laughs> <laughs> but he's supposedly chomping at the bit to get back in the ring. So I'm sure that's this isn't how he wants his legacy to end. And mm-hmm. he definitely doesn't want to fucking crawl back to the WWE with his hat in hand. Um, so Especially I, with Vince back. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't think he even wants to work with Hunter. No, but. He had plenty of issues with Hunter, so mm-hmm. you know I'm sure Hunter didn't want him back either. <laughs> and I'm sure the feeling was mutual. Well, that does it for this week. As a friendly reminder, make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, leave a five-star review. It really helps new listeners to find the podcast and for us to continue to grow. Also, if you like the stories from this week's episode and want to keep up to date with the show, follow us on social media at Amazing Nerd Show or stop by TheAmazingNerdShow.com. And hey, to support the show further and get additional weekly content, you can subscribe to us now on Patreon. Just follow the link in the show notes. Also, if you want to rep some nerd show swag you can head over to tpublic.com to find t-shirts hoodies stickers and more and if you post what you bought and tag us on social media we'll send you some additional nerd show swag as long as you live in the united states all right make sure to join us next week as we talk all the latest news and rumors in nerd culture and whatever's going on in the world of wrestling my name's christian and my name's david and that was the amazing nerd show Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. 